Hello and welcome to Talking Additive episode 26, 3D printing and education in the post-COVID era. In this episode, I will be sitting down with educators from different contexts of education to gain insights into how roles for 3D printing and education have changed over the past few years, including how educators have handled the disruption of COVID-19. Addressing the university level is Chip Bobbert, Senior Technologist and Innovators CoLab Architect at Duke University, who is also a co-founder of Construct3D, a 3D printing and digital fabrication in education conference. Chip speaks to the implication of making technology, like 3D printing, available to an institution at the campus level, serving students and faculty for a broad range of activities, including interdisciplinary, entrepreneurial, extracurricular, and advanced research projects. Addressing the K-12 context is Adam Davidson, a national board certified teacher who teaches engineering design at the high school level in the nearby Durham Public School District at Riverside High School in North Carolina. He has taught for over 15 years and his program has been ranked one of the top rated high school engineering programs. He introduces listeners to his approach to incorporating 3D printing into curriculum and into enrichment activities, as well as how he weaves this technology into the state-adopted Project Lead the Way program curriculum. Addressing out-of-school programs for primary schools, Mary from Maker Girl shares the Maker Girl story, including how they continue to make a difference, inspiring young girls to explore STEM careers using 3D design and 3D printing with new virtual and hybrid programming and by adding a new advanced invention project-based learning track as well. And finally, addressing informal education, Tim Pulla from the Spark Lab at the Smithsonian returns to Talking Additive, having been a key figure in episode four with updates for how he has remained engaged with learners and virtual museum visitors while their space, like for many of the museum teams out there across the world, waits for that moment that they can reopen for physical museum visitors. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within design, manufacturing, education, and our lives? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 26th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays, every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Ultimaker prides itself on solutions that are flexible, productive, and scalable. Its global team of nearly 400 employees works together to accelerate the world's transition to local manufacturing and digital distribution. We have quite the show for you today, so we'll dive right in. Our first guest is a long-standing ally of Talking Additive. With an update from the university-level education context, we have Chip Bobbert from Duke University. I am sharing today's highlights from two interviews with Chip. First one from February 2020, where we met on campus at Duke on the way to Construct3D Conference at Rice University. With COVID-19, only a dim and distant news story on the horizon. And the second interview just weeks ago, 
reflecting on that earlier interview and with a focus on where education heads now in the wake of the global pandemic. Without further ado, Chip Bobbert. My name is Chip Bobbert. I'm with Duke University. I'm the senior technologist and the architect of the Innovation Collab Studios, which is an innovation incubator for Duke University. We're responsible for helping to bring various emerging technologies into the campus ecosystem. And among those is 3D printing. So first of all, uh, thank you very much for joining me. Excellent. Uh, thank you for having me and taking the time out of your day to do this. Uh, my pleasure. How did you first encounter 3D printing? First time I saw 3D printing was probably two decades ago. It was quite a while back. And it was a kind of trinketized tech that people were really hacking at. I had a career in media, and that's how I came to this space. It's sort of an unusual trip, but it's not unusual if you get to meet the large range of people that kind of work in and additive at this point. This is why I have such a soft spot for animators and media technologists. So I worked in compositing and technical work, complicated things behind the scenes with video. And we were seeing 3D printers being used for a lot of jig work and fixture work and they were bringing physical representations of some of the animations that were out and it was super cool to see but i kind of wrote it off i didn't think that there would be any reason that i would ever want to do something like that i also my family has a shop and there is a lot of machining and milling so i was fascinated with this i was a shop rat as a kid so looking at how these parts were coming off of the machine was really interesting for me. So I had been following it the whole way along. I actually came to Duke University to work into the media space. So I had worked at another university doing media engineering type type of duties there. And I came to Duke to do the same. And in managing one of our media labs, I decided to deploy some 3D printers just as a motivational piece so that users of the lab would be able to do those same things that I just mentioned, would be able to create their sculptures. And uh, they did. They used them, and they used them faster, faster than we really had hours that were available for them, and it didn't take long before engineering students, people came out of the woodwork to use the printers. And I was really torn at this one moment between how I wanted to have people access these, and I started making sign-up sheets and reservations, and you got a day, and we'd find out early on 3D printing failed <laughs> quite often, and then of course it, it didn't work, so then what do you do? There's somebody waiting in line who... Does the person that had a failure get the, another opportunity to retry? If the failure perhaps wasn't their fault, that kind of pushes the next reservation back. It's really a mess. And I decided at that point that the answer to this was that paper printer analogy that we needed to just put enough printers out there that the lines would be shorter and times to access them would be reasonable. So, so how did your thinking about creating and fabricating things change in the face of 3D printing? It's certainly that concept of being able to create something out of nothing. And yes, again, there's feedstocks that tie and hook into those printers, but when you first watch it, it's mesmerizing. And even though the process can be quite long, your first 3D print you can sit there and stare at, and it's a little bit hypnotic. The imagination goes wild. The opportunities to create exactly what you want and have it be available there for you too. We like to watch folks go from that design concept that's in their mind to that actual execution in the 3D printing form. You described yourself as being a machine shop rat growing up, getting a chance to see 
all these kinds of processes. What lessons, techniques, and strategies did you bring from your background and from media that have really been useful for you within 3D printing, maybe to share to others who didn't have that experience? I think it's just the access to tools in general that have been most interesting as I think about what things I want to bring forward. I think about my father and the interactions that I had with him, and he showed me how to hammer in a nail, and then the second nail, he allowed me to whack my thumb. So, you know, it's that same process. When we bring people in, and admittedly, sometimes I see some of the designs and I see some of the things that they're printing and the orientations that they may be trying to print it in. And I know that it's not going to work for them. But we have to let that happen because there's no better teacher than failure. So allowing students that opportunity to come in and work through something and see what the results are going to be firsthand is quite profound. I can tell them all day that maybe the way that their approach is to a given problem isn't optimum, but seeing it not work correctly is a better teacher than I am. Uh, so what element of 3D printing and additive manufacturing it makes the biggest difference for you right now? I believe the element that is probably the most interesting for us is the capability of printing bespoke parts. We see this in the medical space where it's most profound. Certainly aspects of our life are sized for us. And when you think about things philosophically like shoes or something else that's, that's simple, there's only really a half a dozen common sizes of shoes out there. And it's odd when you think about the range of human beings and the fact that this half a dozen size between size like eight and 13 and like wide or regular is supposed to fit the entire population of the planet. And with 3D printing and bespoke manufacturing, we can start to look at the individual characteristics of specific anatomy and start to build parts that are a perfect fit for you. And those devices like shoes are just an analogy. When you start to think about how this might be applied to other things like osseointegration, where there's pins placed inside of the body that have specific features that match your anatomy as well as uh, specific kind of functions on the part that may bond better with given types of bone, the possibilities are very profound. When we start to talk about even other simpler parts than that very deep water example like uh, we're using for surgical visualization, we're able to print the actual patient's anatomy and provide those to surgeons that are doing the work. It, it's a different way to view something outside of a 2D screen. Uh, a, a lot of universities have adopted 3D printing, general like student life access 3D printing uh, since you started introducing this at Duke. What are ways in which uh, this is working well and where would you like to see this heading further in the future, uh, both here and elsewhere? I think what's working well has been our interdisciplinary approach to this. I don't think that 3D printing belongs purely in the hands of engineers. I don't believe that it belongs purely in the hands of animators or anyone else. This is a very cross-discipline tool. I like to compare it, hope that it will eventually end up being something like the microwave, which I think was this profoundly successful product. It went from being in no homes in the United States to being in basically every home and a device you couldn't live without in a 10-year window. And I hope that this technology ends up in that place. I, I do believe that it's going to impact everybody across the range of disciplines that are out there. I think that 
where universities may benefit is stepping back to think about that specific thought. I think that having these nailed down to specific areas or behind certain walls or access protocols may be doing a bit of of a disservice to them. I was wondering what kind of digital design tools and software are students and faculty using? Oftentimes, I think that one of our greatest achievements is the fact that digital design is becoming so ubiquitous. Been around the 3D printing space for about seven years now and into the 3D design space for a decade before that. And it was really interesting to see the evolution of how this has happened over my career. I've gone from a point of seeing almost no one able to do 3D work, and that being deeply specialized skills, whether it be in CAD or whether it being in animation, to it being something that you can find pretty readily. When we started our 3D labs here at the university, we did not have easy access to student staff members that, that had these abilities. There were a few and far between, but then oftentimes they were quickly picked up by research labs and not just general technology support spaces like what we're operating. But now it's almost every student that we have that walks in the door has these skills. And a big credit goes out to tools like Onshape and Fusion 360 and PTC Creo and a lot of the thinking of pushing these academic licenses at a significantly lower price point. Um, Not dating myself, when I was a student, these were products that were so prohibitively expensive that finding time on the systems or machines that had a license on them that you could sit down and learn and work through it was very difficult. We see a lot of other training opportunities happening as well too. So there's the empowerment of YouTube has been a big thing. Things like Microsoft Learning, LinkedIn Learning, those products that offer a lot of these software support training type things really allow users to jumpstart right into this into the these tools. Fantastic. And um And so now that there's greater access, how do you feel that these kinds of packages can change to really suit opportunities? I think one of the big changes that's going to offer great potential for a lot of these tools are the collaborative workflows that we see emerging. Tools like Onshape and Fusion 360 really showcase that. You can have multiple people working on the same products or same projects at the same time. And with each passing version of these softwares, you see that integration becoming closer and tighter. It's very much like a Google Doc at this point. You can have 10 collaborators editing the same thing at the same time, and that's just really crazy. I think it's also interesting, too, when you move out of that kind of jack-of-all-trades sort of design space that I call it inventioning. When you move out of that inventioning space and into actual companies where there's specialists for each area, where you may have your accountants that specialize in ordering parts, you can have bill of material type structures inside of those documents that allow them to work through it. So those are things where typically CAD is associated or animation is associated um, with those deep water talents that are working in those products all day long but nobody ever really thinks about what might happen if my accountant has access to a live bill of materials as I'm working through a part. What efficiencies does that enable? Are they ordering the exact parts that are specified by the engineer that's building the thing or the animator? And I think those are the things that we see happening now and are probably most likely to change and empower companies in the next few years. Just as a portrait of of your space, where do you see students and faculty creating their designs? What do they do with the parts once they're printed? 
So in our space, we see most of the, the students and faculty are working on their own machines. It's a very bring-your-own sort of desktop, bring-your-own laptop sort of model, bring-your-own device. A lot of times people are working on even mobile devices at this point in terms of some of their sketching. Most people are working offline outside of the lab in that. They typically come in if they need support for something. Oftentimes, even though those softwares that I've mentioned with Onshape and Fusion 360 are considerably easier to use or perhaps a little bit more intuitive than some previous or other softwares, there's still stumbling points in there. You don't understand what combination of buttons to click to get that thing to happen. So this is you know, where we step in and we hire the more advanced uh, users that, that we can for the space and they're able to mentor and guide people with that. STLs are still so ubiquitous inside of the 3D printing space. Nearly every application uh, that you can do design work in supports and export to that at this point. So most of the workflow that we see from there are users coming out of their design software into the STL format. And then that's where we catch them for the camera, the slicing steps that happen to actually implement and develop their prototype, physical part, digital sculpture, whatever they want to create. With the Ultimaker customers, we see a lot of people creating you know, jigs and fixtures as a an aspect of this. Instead of needing to necessarily start at zero, they're able to take part information and use that to optimize the process. Uh, are you seeing students and faculty thinking that kind of way and doing more with uh, the, the, the designs they're doing, like creating uh, aids or create enclosures or what, what sort of? Absolutely, absolutely. We do see faculty, staff, students that are coming into the space that are using the technology to enable other things that they're doing. The classic scenario for that is somebody making an Arduino-powered thing or a Raspberry Pi-powered thing, and then they need a custom fixture that's going to mount to that, or they have an Arduino-powered robot, and there's armatures that will bolt to it and things like that. And we'll see those created inside of the space as well. So it really pushes us toward that true kind of mechatronics thinking that we're seeing evolve where it's no longer you seeing those focused purely on mechanical engineering or purely on electrical engineering. It's certainly they are for within their coursework, but they're still coming to understand those other fields through their work and through their own personal exploration. Seeing students go from their idea to a startup or a company is probably my favorite thing that happens in education. It used to be that folks were working and developing their skill sets and their hope was to go on and work for Google or Amazon or Apple. And certainly those things do happen and that's really exciting. But for me personally, it's most interesting to see an idea evolve into something that will lead to a company. And I've been fortunate enough to see a few uh, times where that has happened. Inside of the additive space, the concepts of rapid prototyping certainly pair very well with 3D printing, and that's probably the lowest hanging fruit for where we see uh, potential efficiencies happen at the startup level. We see people that are able to work through their iterations faster, locally, there in front of them, get the part off that day, make modifications, rinse and repeat, and they do that the few thousand times necessary to invent their light bulb. And that's probably the most special thing for me, and typically where people come in and they're like, what kind of processes should I use to do my thing? And our answer is generally something like, if you're not using 3D printing at this point in your rapid prototyping process, you're probably doing it incorrectly. That's an amazing statement. So this technology, which was maybe difficult to access in the past, is now so common that it's become a standard process? It, it absolutely has become standard process. 3D printing additive in general, and certainly not just 
additive at the FTM level, but the, the varieties of processes that we see that are now accessible are, are having profound impacts on how people are thinking about their part design and their modifications. It's typically before you did extensive design work and then you would cut a mold and then, you know, that people to, that, that are new to this may not know that having a mold cut for an injection molding process typically starts in the low five figures and quickly goes up from there. You're able to have a physical manifestation of the thing that you're designing where you can test form and fit accurately just right there on your desktop that day. And certainly when you get to the point that you need to manufacture 10 million of some specific part or something like that, injection molding is, is a great way to go. And you know, your processes for which you're developing your product will evolve into that. But in those early stages, it's really difficult to rival the value of 3D printing and and desktop CNC. It's clear that you've been thinking a lot about the you know potential of 3D printing and digital fabrication to help us modify our our footprints and make exactly what we need in terms of impact on the earth, in terms of business impact. Have you been able to sort of take this thinking and introduce it to students? and faculty and staff? Are there conversations that happen uh, within the academic community that you're participating in? Absolutely, and I think that we're touching on a term or a concept of product lifecycle management. So this is certainly a term and a concept that's been around in engineering for a while now, but this is something that we're starting to see more broadly thought about. We're starting to see this is something that's being executed in software, something that's being thought of in terms of actually developing that product and thinking about it in terms of, of from birth to death and every step along the way. In manufacturing, it's always been interesting. You can't just think about how your CNC machine is going to perform when it makes its first part. You have to think about what those bits and fixtures and jigs might look like after they produce their 10,000th part. Are your tolerances going to be as tight? Is that going to be a part that has a smooth and clean surface? Is it going to make... These are the things that have been thought about in that way, but we have to start applying those concepts. If we're going to use desktop manufacturing as a way to start to implement change, especially where we're looking at distributed manufacturing concepts, we do have to think about how those materials and parts are going to work. Certainly a hot topic inside of 3D printing is what to do with all of those leftover prints that were prototype iteration number 147, and you don't need it anymore because you just made prototype iteration number 148. Do we put it in the trash can? You know, what happens there? It doesn't have the recyclable logos on it that we can perhaps do something with. It may have other impurities or problems with it that make it difficult to reuse. A lot of concepts are starting to emerge at the very high level, that Star trek futurism kind of thinking where we're talking about closed-loop materials and materials that could basically just be converted back into a form that we can put back into the 3D printer and continue to get parts out of, hopefully infinitely, but it would be great to just see it used more than once. There's a lot of startups out there that are thinking about how to repurpose and reuse this filament, but pessimistically, plastics are just not something that we figured out a great way to reuse and deal with yet. And I think the 3D printing industry is going to have to start investing and thinking into what the plastics problem is going to look like. Uh, let's take a couple of minutes to talk about materials. What sort of materials do you find most of the people coming through the labs are using? And, and what materials, like new materials, are offering things that are useful to them? 
Typically, our workhorse filament is going to be PLA, just a, a generic, general PLA. It's economical. One of the things that's very important to me is to provide free 3D printing or to our users free and as close to unlimited as I, as I can give them. My belief is the more you're 3D printing and the more different ideas that you try to test with this technology, the better off you are from a learning perspective. You're picking up a lot that's there. I believe that probably one of the one of the bigger disservices that I could do to that would be to put processes and steps in place that put limits on that, that reduce the amount of that. So with that, because of those reasons and because of the economical nature of PLA and because of the fact that it really works a high percentage of the time, uh, PLA is our workhorse filament. I certainly love having conversations when folks come in and they're like, I need something stronger, more weather resistant or lighter or something like that. We look at filaments that have infused fibers. We look at filaments that have like ASA, for example, that has tremendous weather resistance and other things like that that come in. So people are certainly looking at flexible filaments and exploring those within the concept of their parts. People really like other things such as, as polyesters and things that have a little bit of a smoother texture. PLA can tend to have a little bit of a harsh, almost sharp texture to it, especially on right angles and things like that, whereas the, the polyesters generally have just a slightly warmer feel to it. Uh, are you doing a lot with multi-material printing? We do a lot with multi-material printing, but it has not been a game changer for us. The support structures of the machines are improving at such a rate that removing support structure from parts is significantly easier than what it was years ago. They used to be the support structures were pretty well welded. And now we see the folks that are thinking about the slicing algorithms putting a lot of time in, and it's greatly appreciated. These are the things that, that, the, that end users probably aren't seeing, but we're seeing those lighter, thinner contact points. We're seeing materials where perhaps it's the same material for the support structure, but it's only using PVA for that very top millimeter of contact or so, which then reduces some of the challenges with trying to print with PLA. We notice some of those strategies that are in there, and yes, technically that, that method of inserting just a slight amount of, of uh, PVA in there would be a dual extrusion process, but we most of our printing at this point is still single extrusion. It just for speed and getting parts out and for barrier to entry. It's hard to teach people to really think about using that second material, especially when a lot of our users come in and they're introductory and they're learning out. And it's just, it's hard to explain to them the concept of 3D printing and seemingly making something from almost nothing as it is. And what about using 3D printing in combination with other techniques? Like you have access offered to desktop CNC, vinyl cutting, all kinds of other types of technology. It was very important to me just to think about 3D printing in terms of a hybridized process. I don't think that there is really any part or product out there for which a single manufacturing process is completely the way to go end to end. FDM is probably the purest form of 3D printing and the fact that it's purely additive. But even when you look at other things like polyjet and you start to look at some of the hybridized processes that happen in there, there's planarization steps that happened. It's grinding layers smooth. So when you start to think about looking at your parts, even in an FDM window where you're creating and getting an FDM part out, if that part has support material on it, you may be abrading some of those contact points out to get that smoother injection molded kind of thing. And for me, that's what I would call a hybridized step that's in there. CNC itself is a great complement 
to 3D printing. So I think when I talk to a lot of people, one of the frustrations that I get is this one technology to rule them all. And that's a bad way to think about it. I think that you need to think about the benefits of CNC and the benefits of 3D printing. You can make parts pretty quick and you can work with metals and steels and other very hard materials on CNC, desktop CNC, even at this point, fairly quickly. You can make very light, flexible parts that are perhaps hollow on the inside or have other properties that are interesting to that part. It, it, you have to think about those two together. You can make the bumper of your car with your 3D printer. You're going to want to make your engine block with a CNC machine. What would you like to see happen in the world of FFF and how it contributes to progress in these areas in the next two years, five years, and ten years? I think the big opportunities inside of FFF at this point are going to be continuing to add more closed-loop feedback to the systems that are there. I think that we have made tremendous strides and the firmwares that are out there to control these systems. But I think the ability of the system to know what state it is in, and to explain that, we want to know when the printer is clogged. We want the, the system to perhaps take steps, if it feels it's getting clogged, that it can detect that resistance and move away. If, if we crash into something and we start to skip steps on a stepper motor, we want to be able to have the machine take interventions to reset itself or rehome itself. And these are a lot of the low-hanging fruits, and we are very aware of the cost and the pain involved with developing around closed-loop concepts versus open-loop concepts, and we know that's going to drive the cost of the products, and we do hope marketplace competition is going to really compel everybody to fight this out and continue to make these machines that are just smarter and smarter. I think at the same token, too, more deeply integrated workflows into middleware products are going to be very important. I think being able to control these systems at the fleet level will be something to think about. And when we start to look at other machines out there, for instance, if you're a large company and you have 100 pickup trucks that you use in your service inventory, it's very common now um, to use companies that provide tracking and GPS information and cameras and all kinds of other features that let the managers of those fleets know what's happening with them. This just is good practice. And I think that we're going to need to see that inside of 3D printing land as we see these deployments getting larger and larger. I'd like to see universities five years from now with 3D printers as common as paper printers or you know, laser printers that we have sitting around in pretty much every dorm room or every library. These There's just should be hundreds of these available. For that to happen, we're going to need management products uh, or management functionality inside of these that are going to give us feedback. The, the technicians that are managing these machines real-time input so that they know to go out and service these machines if it's necessary. And again, to take those steps to hopefully mitigate a lot of the preventable service that could happen. In this episode for Talking Additive, I have the opportunity to do a little time traveling, which is fun. Listen to a conversation that we had that I thought was quite excellent and, and really still pertinent to a lot of 3D printing in February of 2020. Just before Construct 3D would come up shortly afterward, the last physical event that both of us ran before the pandemic hit. Even in there, we had a couple of points of discussion about things like supply chain, where coronavirus was starting to, to creep in, but it, it crept in as something distant. Now it's not such a distant thing. And so I have a couple of follow-up questions to help share with Talking Additive listeners how things uh, change because mm -hmm. 
you and your team at Duke did so many things to address 3D printing, including finding other ways with all digital fabrication tools to get involved in making a difference for COVID, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But my first question is how have things been specifically for leveraging FFF 3D printing technology there within the larger Duke ecosystem? So FFF's been interesting. Obviously, it's been a it's been a growing and exploding entry point for 3D printing. FFF has relatively few constraints because of the lack of a need for significant post-processing or a chemical post-processing or post-processing equipment that's high pressure sprays and things like that. FFF is always interesting because you can just, if your design is clever, you can just simply start the print and pull the part off and pretty much have immediate access to it. So this gives you an economy that is more true to its representation. So this isn't a, this isn't something like SLA where you're going to print it and then you're going to have to budget time, both human labor and automated labor, to process that part after the fact. Generally speaking, if it says your part's going to take four hours to print, you can expect to have a ready-to-use part four hours later. It, again, if you're clever and you think through some of the design for print needs. Uh, in, in terms of what we you know do here and how, how we're using that and leveraging it, certainly the that conversation I think that you and I had a month or so before I think the pandemic was really fully going, back when it was just buried in the news cycle as something happening on the other side of the world. And a couple of people had it and we were just all occasionally watching it on the headline. It wasn't the headline. Obviously, that's impacted, I think, 3D printing pretty significantly. I think we looked a lot, we think a lot about things being manufactured in mega factories and happening elsewhere. And I think I've been a pretty big evangelist throughout my career about the concept of distributed manufacturing and starting to think of factories more from a, a desktop size scale devices instead of mega factories and things like that. Uh, and what opportunities that might prevent to reduce shipping, to reduce dependencies on certain regions where there could be environmental problems. We've all seen, I think over the last year too, snowstorms have shut down corners of the country for which various manufacturing or shipping channels are heavily reliant upon. And that's obviously created additional supply chain impacts. And we have seen, even recently, uh, supply chain impacts with things unrelated to 3D printing, such as gas and fuel, which is from um, nothing environmental but from hacking. So we have to, I think, start thinking through just across all civilizations what it is to be dependent on very specific regions to produce almost all of the world's goods. And I think that 3D printing and FFF have a pretty big opportunity, I think, to decentralize and get away from this mega factory concept. And I think along the way, too, we could potentially realize other benefits. I think we could realize potentially a reduction of environmental impact if, we're, if we're, we're developing and printing things in a distributed way. There's a lot of opportunities there. I think, too, and probably something that I'm pretty passionate about is where this is for helping the developing countries of the world achieve a little bit more. It's very difficult to develop shipping and supply channels into a lot of places that may not have mega shipping ports and the other infrastructure necessary to deal with it. Again, if you have the ability to put a small robotic device somewhere, there's a lot of opportunity to transport designs digitally to a device and have it physically created locally and therefore reducing a lot of the constraints surrounding the delivery of things. 
And I think what's even more interesting, and I, th- I think I'm getting probably a little bit long-winded in my answer here, but I think given, I think I've said things like that statement probably a thousand times in my career to other people that have asked. And when, when people say, what are the benefits of 3D printing? And you rattle off the list of five or six or seven things. And I always try to include that one in that list of five or six or seven things. That's always the one that I think people's eyes have typically glossed over a little bit. And you can tell they or looking out of the window and halfway paying attention to what you're saying because that's just not the point that is um, really driving home for them or is super important to their thinking at the moment. But I think one of the changes in the last year, and I think even in that last interview where we talked, I, I mentioned something about the opportunities for distributed manufacturing. But I think now that's something that when I bring up that point, people, everybody nods and everybody agrees and they lean forward in their chair and listen a little bit more intently. I absolutely agree with that. It's It was a big change, even for me, just starting out talking additive. I did a bunch of interviews before COVID really hit. The, the impact was starting to happen because I already had to do a couple of the interviews remotely before anybody really kind of knew what was happening. And so I would ask questions about distributed manufacturing. I would ask questions about the importance of on-site capabilities. And I ask those questions now and it's like, boom, boom, people have been thinking about it. They know exactly what they want to say about it. They've seen that 3D printing can be a help. Even I think it actually also in particular helps overcome the assumption that whenever you talk about distributed manufacturing, you're only talking about one thing, which is a manufacturing cell in a traditional sense being closer to the the end users. (laughs) Now people understand that just having on-site capabilities for manufacturing manufacturing aids, process aids, elements that that allow you to adapt and bracket and that sort of thing. But that kind of stuff and having having the opportunity to eliminate supply chain issues there makes a big difference between production stopping and production proceeding. Absolutely. And production evolving. So I think that's another really interesting thing too. I think when you're looking at traditional manufacturing, you're looking at often you're injecting into dyes or you're extruding through dyes and things like that. And, and that's great uh, because part number one is identical to part number one million. And I think what's interesting about 3D printing is we saw this through the production of some of our face shields at the earlier part of, the, of our sort of project to help serve some of our healthcare workers. But we were making incremental adjustments from across each one that was being printed. And I think a lot of that was super subtle. I think we ended up with about 10 or 12 different versions through the first thousand or so that we produced. So it's, and a lot of them were very subtle. It was a half a millimeter here and a one degree bend over there. And we did something to remove some burrs along the forehead piece along the way. So you're not just producing, but you're iterating as you're producing as well. Iterations make better parts. And I think that incorporating desktop robotic fabrication into your processes make better parts as you're printing, producing, evaluating, and continuing that process over and over again. Absolutely. Oh, I think that's an amazing point, especially because there haven't often been opportunities to really push the timelines the way that they had to for that specific project. If you think about it, and people that I have talked to on Talking Additive already have talked about how the time to put up a line to produce a product, particularly a medical one where there are compliance issues, is pretty long. And there's like a set, there's all these these gates to test things that, that feel impossible to end users who think that a factory, you just turn it on like a light bulb and you make more of something. They don't realize that every particular line really needs some some build-in testing, et cetera, when you have a part of this. So to have an opportunity to both accelerate that past those 
traditional time gates and be able to do on the fly changes. It really introduces some new concepts. I think that's a really exciting thing to bring up. Now, speaking of which, I've been following things that you've been up to for the last year and a half, and the list is not shorter than the, the time period before. It is much longer. You've been doing so many things uh, with so uh, many different teams trying things, and uh, 3D printing's played some interesting roles. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share a couple of the projects where 3D printing has ended up being useful, including uh, other additive manufacturing technologies? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think your your earlier point there is very valid. It's often said that necessity is the, the mother of invention, and uh, the pandemic certainly created a lot of necessity. And when you look at invention, it's difficult to find a tool that would be more useful than a 3D printer in terms of producing things. It's, I think anymore it's right there in the, the toolbox with screwdrivers and hammers and everything else like that. It's a tool that's becoming just as important as that. So there has been a lot of projects that we have undertaken. Probably the largest scale one was the production. Like many health systems, we had uh, shortages of PPE early on. We wanted to protect our healthcare workers as best we could. And we were incorporating face shields as a something that we could do very quickly. 3D printing certainly served that, that very well in development of that. Several community projects did pop up for which designs were made available, and we certainly look to those in guiding our own design and have what's very similar to what was uh, published by the Perusa Group and with a lot of modifications toward injection molding and just some of the comfort and curvature factors that we determined that we needed. And they were really great products. We ended up ultimately producing about 95,000 of those face shields. We produced about a, the first thousand of those by a 3D printing. I think that number ended up being about 1,200. And we were producing those. I think it was a great use case for just robotic production and some of these manufacturing shifts along the way. While we were producing these and iterating on these, making those improvements that I mentioned before, we're working with a, a manufacturer to cut aluminum molds for an injection molding process, which is interesting in and of itself because that's such a anti-classical manufacturing kind of thing. Um, typically working with aluminum molds it was often considered very low brow and now it enabled a faster time to market, if we want to call it that, with the products that we were producing. And there were quite a few other things along the way, too. So there was a lot of, of again, barrier-related projects that we were working on. I think that barriers were something that our group identified as being an area that we should target pretty aggressively. So the face shields are something that we would consider a barrier. Barriers have a, a slightly lower burden at the device level. As you might imagine, the FDA closely regulates medical devices, and, and as well they should. We obviously want to make sure that the things that are going out in the field are safe. But some of the restrictions were the belt was loosened just a little bit to help us go through things a little bit faster, as long as we could show that we were making good decisions and supported decisions along the way. Other things that we produced modifications to suits that were out there to help them perform more like a papper, which is basically a bi-directional filtration device. We found that a lot of surgical devices, it seems a little counterintuitive to people out that are out there, but the surgical devices and filtration systems weren't actually in place to protect doctors and surgeons. It's designed to protect the patient. So it's designed to filter the air and the emissions of the doctor against the patient, but not really designed to filter anything coming into the doctor in terms of protection. So we had produced devices that also put filtration in line with some of those suits. One suit in particular from, from Stryker. And it was interesting to work through that process because this was really uh, 
you know, as an exposure to the to the patent process, we do have a patent pending for that device as well. And colleagues have produced other things for which 3D printing was really useful, such as patient isolation tents. People don't think about this, but often patients have to move through the hospital. And if they are in the more critical phases of COVID than that, obviously transporting them is something we have to think about very closely. So this put an envelope around them that helped them contain things. And again, that work is, is actually pending releases of products. So there's a lot happening on that front as well. So there's quite a bit that happened on RN. We produced numerous little devices for COVID detection and a lot of casework for other devices uh, that were meant, around meant as diagnostic tools. So 3D printing really helped out with a lot of that stuff. When you were telling about some of the projects you've been working on and achieving even during these you know, very disrupted times, you've mentioned in the past and in sharing things around with colleagues, et cetera, that 3D printing has been helpful for, for some of the process of developing these things. I was wondering if you might share, you know, a little bit, even if you can't share about the actual pieces, mm -hmm. how you use the technology to c collaborate remotely mm -hmm. and make functional devices that have real requirements. Absolutely. So my style of production, it, it's interesting when you meet other uh, designers and, and you look at their workflows and how they produce different things and what their kind of processes are. Mine is very much, I have a very, I'll call it like a cowboy type approach to production where I really just want to get parts in hand as quickly as possible. There's a lot of focus on agility within my workflows. And, and I think that suits a, a general process of the concepts of rapid prototyping where it's produce a part, iterate, produce the part, iterate, and do that as often and as ruthlessly fast as possible until you get parts in hand and that, that are just perfect. And so just often I'm looking through a list of parts that are off to the side of my laptop right now. And I think there's version 18 is sitting there of one. And I think each version has a lot of micro adjustments at this point that just really get us to the point of dialed in. And I think the classical approach to, to producing things, it was so expensive to machine and produce things in the past that oftentimes you, you wouldn't do that. You would stare at your part and your drawings forever and think about it to the nth degree before you ever paid anyone to cut that part because machining was the big thing you know, back when I was learning this trade. And that really slows things down. It's really demotivational. It really it stops other uh, work from happening as well. So if you think about it, typically the world just doesn't exist with one designer, one engineer sitting in a corner somewhere producing a machine completely top down by themselves. There's often a team of 20, 30, 50, 100 people working on a specific machine. So getting it, you'll find that one part informs the production of the other part. So until you get something in the hands of, of somebody else, then their work is stopped while they're, they're doing things as well. So in the classical way, if you have a bunch of people just sitting around staring at drawings and really thinking through everything, then what you have is a bunch of people just sitting around. And that's not necessarily useful. Again, I like to see it's very motivational. I think it makes better systems and parts to just be able to produce those iterations and versions as fast as possible. So if I'm producing something for, I uh, have a CNC router that I'm building in the basement right now, if I'm producing a part with that, whoever's producing the part for the other side of it can, can begin working um, on that as well. So it, it enables a lot of people to work simultaneously. If you have a group specifically where we see the mechatronics approach to a lot of the products that are happening in the world, where you can have somebody working, the mechanical folks could be building the casework of a particular device, while the electronics team could really be focusing on theirs, and they could be making sure that the supports and the holes and the standoffs are all going into the right places. 
things like that. And I think it really just enables that just this faster, uh, better workflow that's a lot more exciting and motivational for the people that are involved in it. I've also heard of like Apollo 13 style interventions where you have multiple people participating to try to solve a problem with similar resources to then maybe bring that approach to one of the endpoints. I Did any of that happen in any of your processes? Uh, it, it does. It happens quite often. So the it's interesting you bring up Apollo 13 because I use that as an example all the time. There's the I think anyone that's seen the movie or knows the story knows of this scenario where this very expensive spacecraft in the middle of the, the, the space race in the height of the Cold War era was hurtling through space and the whole thing is broken and they basically had a team of engineers figured out how, figure out how they could fix this whole thing with pipe cleaners and duct tape and whatever else they could find lying around. And I always like to cite that as an example and say, what would happen if they had a 3D printer on board? You would, they it would have made for a very boring movie is what I think the net result would have been. You would have just had everything working and fixed. And if they could print it within the time constraints that they had, would probably be the biggest issue. But, and when you think through that, it goes back to the same point of distributed manufacturing. And thinking about applying that to that question, there's the concept of distributed prototyping. And nobody really talks about that. I think, obviously, one of the things that's changing in the world right now with the pandemic that will probably stick is a lot of the remote work that's happening. It's interesting. There, for a long time here, I've been hearing through the news cycles that this is uh, you know, about the return to work and things like that. And I'm seeing a lot less of that. And I'm seeing things in the news cycle like hybrid work environments and hotel work environments and things like that are really out there. What happens if you have a team of designers and you have somebody in Austin and in San Francisco and Durham, North Carolina and... New York and you know wherever else and they all need to work together to produce parts they'll have a 3D printer in their in their in their home office or home shop you just have parts falling off you know exactly what everybody's working with because you produced the thing overnight and had it ready in the morning to start your kind of design cycle again i think i think that concept of distributed manufacturing is definitely going to evolve into distributed prototyping. That ability to ship digital files across the internet and produce them is going to outpace our ability to FedEx things from place to place. And it, it's certainly going to outpace uh, the cost of those as well. I think that's a really illuminating point. As you're pointing out, you know, engineering in, in certain ways can happen in a lot of places and with a lot of contributors. And so when you get a, away from the notion that the, the work is the place and start thinking of the work as the individual contributor and, and what they have available, you'll see some interesting things. I, I feel that over the years, uh, you've been thinking about this, even from the, the beginning of really pushing for campus-wide changes with having the Innovation Collab make fabrication available to, to everybody in a way that could change some behaviors. I was wondering if you might highlight a couple of things that you think have changed about how either things have been fulfilled with the infrastructure there in terms of the Innovation Collab, in terms of the collaborations that you help facilitate, including you know, the medical device development, mm -hmm. that you think will be things that will continue to be useful and, and be processes that you'll take forward. The pandemic has showcased what we have always said was possible with this technology. I think perhaps where the pandemic has helped us, it certainly has been bad in a lot of ways, but the silver lining for additive has really been some of the acceptance of it. it. used to be I would hand people parts and they would 
It'd feel like a little bit of the coarseness on the sides and it would see the striations of the parts and it was like, why isn't this as smooth as as uh, an injection molded part and people certainly put all kinds of efforts into smoothing sprays and smoothing dips and vapor baths and things like that that they would use to polish a part for the point and purpose of making it feel more like an injection molded part. With that where we were putting things that were useful into people's hands and they're seeing a lot more of these parts and a lot more of the parts have just been out there there's this acceptance of ah, I have a 3D printed part and uh, that's fine and I don't care that it was 3D printed and I don't care that it doesn't exactly mimic what uh, what an injection molded part might look like. I have a part in my hand here today and now, and that, that makes it better than the part that's uh, not here in my hand today and now and here in my hand next week. So I think that really helps. I think in terms of education, I think that... I believe strongly that anytime you can democratize a technology that I think that it helps all involved. And I think every time throughout the course of the history of technology, anytime we have democratizing, if you think about the movement from away from mainframe type computing to PC type computing and all of the things that then unlocked for us and then putting things like computing, not just in your home office, but in your pocket and all of the things that has unlocked for us and all of the things that cloud tools are beginning to do for us. I think that the opportunities for 3D printing and education are the same as what's, what was always there. But it's going to change the way the orders of, of things are taught. I think that the combination of 3D printing, and it's often, I think, under-discussed in the areas of when you're talking purely additive, but talking about some of the design tools um, that are out there that are really enabling this next generation of work are also very important. So typically, when I was going to college for a lot of this stuff, it was very difficult to find time on machines with CAD packages. And I think mm-hmm. obviously the intertwinement between various CAD packages and various printing platforms is very important and it's best thought of maybe as an ecosystem as opposed to just one thing or another. But I think now it's just everybody has a CAD tool on their computer. So what does this look like? It's no longer trying to come up with one or two special classes that are designed to give people exposure to something because the license of, of that particular software is $5,000 and it requires a thermonuclear video card and fire-breathing desktop computer to be able to run. People are buying reasonably provisioned laptops and putting this on there and everybody has it. So it goes back to the point that I was saying about democratizing technology. If everybody has this technology and everybody has access to it, when are you going to teach this? It no longer has to be a class that you get your senior year or your junior year the way perhaps it was in classical schedules. But this is something that you can potentially expose students to their first day of class. Welcome to, to Engineering 101. Here is your, here's your exposure to various CAD tools and digital design platforms. And by the way, there's a 3D printer in the corner of the classroom and you can produce the things that you need to produce. I think the question is, what does it look like in 10 years? Do we, is it even something that's taught? Or is this something that is skill that we just have as a skill? Not to date myself, but when I was you know, going through college myself, this was, we took classes on how to use word processors. And it, it's, this is how you open Word, how you do things. We had a class on how to use PowerPoint, things like that. You just have that skill now. People just do. So I think the question is, is, that, is it going to be this way for 3D tools and 3D design? and that 10 to 20 year strategic range. And I think quite possibly. So what does it look like if people have that? Does this end up being something that's even taught? Do we spend time focusing on where the buttons are in CAD? Do we spend time explaining to people what a 3D printer is and how it works? Or is this just 
something that will become part of our culture at this point. That makes a lot of sense to me, especially from uh, talk, talking to educators about how they're you know, seeing this and, and dealing with this now. Speaking of which, I was wondering if you might mention another activity that you're involved with. You're a co-founder of Construct3D. We've had a, a focus on Construct3D before. This time last year, we had mm -hmm. an episode that was sharing a couple of those, those those special last in public, in physical space education sessions from Construct3D 2020. But do you want to introduce what you're up to with Construct3D today? Absolutely. I'm extremely proud of the, the Construct3D suite of things. I'm having to actually think through what to, what to call it anymore because it used to be, this was a conference. This was a program really founded around professional development and providing shared learning opportunities across this area. We have the additive and 3D design touch so many different aspects of education where there's folks producing really wild things with math-based art, math-based design, and of course, the classical mechanical engineering concepts that are associated with additive. And just getting all of the medicine and everything else, and just getting all these people into the same room and providing opportunities for them to present to one another about the work that they've been doing, I think has really opened a lot of doors. With all things education, there's a thought of we learn from one another, we stand on the shoulder of giants, and we inform one another in the things that we're doing. So Construct3D is always, was a conference, it was developed to be that way, but with a pandemic, conferences are out of vogue to an extent, but the learning opportunities and the mission for that really haven't gone away. In fact, they're probably more important than ever as we're figuring out what to do within a changing educational landscape. How does remote learning affect the classroom? If you, we've spent all this time throughout this interview discussing what it looks like to 3D print a part with a printer that's in the corner of your classroom or something like that. But what does it look like if you're not actually in that classroom? So we're all thinking through these things together. We're all sharing the same problems and we're all starting to develop a lot of the same solutions. So Construct3D is really evolving into a just a fully featured professional development tool. We're still keeping that same ethos of learning from one another and treating this as a content curation type thing. So where that's taking us, we are we, as with last summer, have been putting on a series of uh, learning opportunities we call our summer symposiums, which are various curated talks and learning opportunities that we've bundled together. And I think we're looking at having about 16 or so of those this summer, with more potentially coming. And just putting those out there and putting as many of those out there at cost or free as we can, just to keep the community together and, and keep people that are focused on these problems and the future of this particular technology thinking and working toward toward the common goals of improving education. So if I can leave with one point, I would definitely say, please do check in to our website and look at some of the programming that we have this summer. We're really proud of what we've been able to put together and the evolution that we've undergone over the last you know, 18 months or so. Thank, thank, uh, thank you very much, Chip. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I strongly encourage uh, listeners to go and check it out. In particular, this is educators talking to educators about how to grapple with and work functionally in some of these new modes for not just the earliest days of how actually do you do virtual, but also some of the not only hybrid strategies, but some of the ones that involve changes in how equipment access and things like this going forward. So that's probably a great place to, to wrap out. Chip, thank you very much for joining for Talking Out of, uh, this week and, and letting me share this, this story from the past, so before the wave. Thank you for letting me join, Matt. It was very 
interesting to have that discussion with you five minutes before that was happening. So it's, it's pretty wild to have this kind of follow-up about some of those things and what's new, what's changing, what's different along the way. Thanks again to Chip for joining for this unique opportunity to bring together interviews on either side of the peak of COVID-19. Our next guest is not terribly far away geographically and is from the Durham Public School District. I have met with Adam a few times before, including touring his lab, having been introduced to him by Chip Bobbert at Duke and Glenn Walters from UNC Chapel Hill. I was thrilled to catch up with him. I'm Adam Davidson from Durham, North Carolina. I teach at Riverside High School. I am a senior engineering teacher a very veteran teacher for the past 17, 18 years. I teach Project Lead the Way courses. I'm certified in five of them, six of them, many of them. Primarily, I teach freshmen and seniors, but there is a smattering of sophomores and juniors in there. The program that I teach at is at Riverside High School. We refer to it as the Riverside Engineering Program. We've been doing this pretty thoroughly since 2007, back when one of my colleagues and I revamped, we started this system back up and, and put it into place. And I think it's fair to say that we're one of the top engineering programs at a high school level. It is across the entire nation that you, you'll find PLTW courses, but in the state of North Carolina, we're probably the number one program. And we don't say that lightly. We don't go out and tout it a whole lot, but it's it's definitely something that we have data to back up. Our kids are working at an AP, and in some cases, I would even venture to say at a master's level in, in a college setting, uh, especially with one of the new courses that we took on this past year, which was interesting to take that course on in the middle of a pandemic for the very first time, and it being a capstone course. Uh, so that's who I am. That's where I teach. I'm in Durham Public Schools, Riverside High School and uh, part of the PLTW engineering program. You want me to tell you what PLTW stands for? Would that be I helpful? I do. You read my mind. Uh, yeah, we love throwing around acronyms in education, don't we? So PLTW is Project Lead the Way, started out of New York uh, and has made its way to, to every state and pretty much every level of, of education. Project Lead the Way began many, many years ago, 20 plus years, I believe. But it started as being very much so attached to Rochester Institute of Technology, part of RIT, which mm -hmm. anybody's ever going to go get trained, I highly recommend that's the place that they go to get trained. And then it gradually over time became a bigger and bigger organization and then was eventually privatized. It was, it's actually two entities. There is a nonprofit now entity and a profit entity. Their store where they sell merch and that kind of stuff is for profit, but then their education side of it is a not-for-profit. And I've been around long enough to see a lot of the changes that have gone into place. The best thing about it, in my opinion, now that it is more privatized and more of this dual entity that we see, is that we get a, a cleaner, more streamlined approach to the curriculum. Back when I started, you used to be able to, to go in and just heavily modify everything and it was here's just this database let's get it to you the best way we can usually that was during a training and you went around with your laptop and your master teachers the guys that were training you gave you flash drives and you just plugged it all in and you downloaded everything and then it became here's this 
bank of, of information that you can find, you know, lots of resources, but you could still download them and you could still modify them. Now they have their own clean inkling site and it's, there are some things that you can download. And, and in fact, I do a lot of times with PowerPoints and that kind of stuff, I'll go in and I'll modify them or I'll provide them to the students, but it's all, you know, rubber stamped PLTW approved. This is what we say makes for good education. The, the best thing about it though, uh, over the years is that they have done a great job with every new iteration of it, of unpacking the curriculum, of making sure that we have met national standards, which usually align with the state standards, and that it is all there. One of the biggest problems teachers have is here are the standards that you have to make sure your kids understand and, and know, and you have to build the curriculum around it. For mm-hmm. us, that's done. And then that gives us the ability to tweak it and modify it so that we have more time on our hands to to go beyond what a, a typical teacher would have to do. But it has been around for a while. It's been in the state of North Carolina since about three years before I started teaching at Riverside. That's interesting. Now, would you say that the kind of modifications that you make tend to be more in the enrichment direction than changes in, in like local standards or things like that? Oh, absolutely. It's in the, It's in the enrichment. The state buys into this curriculum, so they know it's a third party. They agree. They look over all the standards and they say, yes, this is great. This aligns with what we're looking for us. It allows us to teachers like myself to go in and really dive a little deeper into some of the curriculum, maybe branch out and take them to places like Construct 3D or even when we do things like the Disney field trip, taking them down there to be able to do some engineering labs or we set them up with field trips over to the underwriters laboratory where they're presenting to those professionals and then getting some feedback on what they presented and then working with them on what are the standards that you're creating at this place for testing materials and products. And then we'll take them over to, you know, GE aviation or out to an, an airfield down at RDU or up at a small one in Henderson, Oxford area. <clears throat> so it's really about our ability to take that a step further and take what PLTW has provided as a curriculum and modify it to, to appeal to the type of student and parents and families that are in our area, the Raleigh-Durham area. You have the Research Triangle Park, and RTP has just a ton of, you get these Duke professors and engineers and doctors and then the UNC people, but then you also get the the kids that aren't part of those families that come in that see all of this engineering going on in this area and they want to get their hands on it as well. So one of the enrichment things that we like to do is be able to reach out to those parents and those kids, those families that are more affluent and get them to help us with finding ways to pull in the kids that maybe wouldn't find this as an opportunity if we weren't Mm. around. The development of the Fab Lab has really helped us be able to reach out to the rest of the school. So, for example, we had a really good connection professionally with Duke and UNC. And Duke has recently upgraded from their Ultimaker 2 and 2 Pluses to the S3 is what they've purchased. And so Chip over at Duke reached out to me, reached out to Durham Tech and said, Hey, you want these? <laughs> we want to make sure they go to a awesome. good home. That's going to... That's going to afford us the ability to, to put, we had already 11 to, to 13 in that fab lab. And now I have 15 more that, yeah, I'm going to have to do some work to them. That's the beauty about them, right? Is I can rip them apart, put them all back together, still buy the parts for the twos and the two pluses, and then 
get those in the hands of some of the other teachers. Because there's people that are in our department that are not part of PLTW that want to be 3D printing. It's hard for them to bring a whole class over into the fab lab while I'm teaching and run the 3D printers. But if I can put one in their hands, if I can put one in the library media center up at the, the front of the school or two and then train them and then get them set up on. Now you can train the rest of the staff and they can come up to your lab and we'll start making this not only a, an LMC, but also a, a makerspace or fab lab as well. That kind of thing doesn't happen unless you can build the enrichment into the type of curriculum that we're teaching to one fourth of our school's population. So Riverside High School, let's talk about this program that you started in 2007. You said you restarted and, and shaped into yeah, what, we, what you have now. We revamped it. School's an urban school. You may not know that driving up to it. It is set back in a neighborhood and in the woods, but it is. it does serve an urban setting. Durham itself is not only the city but also the county and there are a few suburbs of it you know but it's but it mostly fills that county very small size to the county with a fairly good sized population it is a school that i've seen now since 2007 transform a couple of different times and it's a district that i've seen transform quite a bit over the past oh man i've been in in this area since 1999 and it's there were times where you didn't go to durham if people that lived in raleigh why would you go to durham it's scary why would you go there but you start to realize that area uh, that school and and the other schools in that area are all about their community and you don't realize that unless you're part of that community the school itself is uh, i've seen it go you know, everywhere from near 1,500 kids to 2,000 kids. I think currently this year we're at around 1,800. We're projected to, to be a bit lower than that due to all the pandemic stuff that we had to go through and losing some kids due to attrition, oh, some gosh. to private schools and charters and things like yeah. that. But the, the great thing about what our program does is we aren't losing those kids that would have been going to private. In fact, we're even taking them from some of the private and charter schools in, in the area. So... Our makeup of the engineering students, we're looking at 400 plus anywhere, sometimes up to 600, depends on the year. We are, that's why we say we're around a quarter. Sometimes we're closer to a third. Sometimes we're closer to a quarter, but it's usually 100 plus kids per grade level. Okay. Uh, We bring in 140 new faces every year to that first year class. These kids do range in everything from uh, race, gender, socioeconomic background. Yeah, we do get the kids that that their parents are already an engineer over an RTP or they're teaching over at Duke or they're they're, uh, running a makerspace over at UNC, right? So we know that we're gonna get those kinds of kids, but then we also have these kids that They'll show up at, a, at one of our meetings that we'll have for the the community. We'll do this usually in December of the year before, just before the magnet application opens up. And we'll have kids that are from every background show up for that. Somewhere between 30 to 40% of our student population that comes in is non-white. And then many of those students that are coming in are also classified as either middle class or lower. We're an urban setting. 
Now, are we reaching as many as we'd like? The answer to that is always going to be no. We really want to be able to tap into as many people as we can. And right now, what we identify is that we have that population that knows STEM is the future. And I want to get into a good school. I have a young lady that, in fact, I worked with this past semester with our new capstone course. She mentored some of our students. She's running the waste management system for the International Space Station at NASA. She's one of two people that runs that system. Wow. And she wasn't in an aerospace class. She was all about electronics. She had a grandfather that worked for NASA as a subcontractor. So that's what she went on to do. She made her way out to Baylor and just went from there and is now loving it down in Houston, working for NASA, watching these rockets launch. It it really is a wide variety of the kinds of kids that we bring in. So we got the program going in 2007. We got it reignited, I like to say. Because we had a couple of guys that were at that retirement age. And one of them I replaced, who I'm, I'm actually very good friends with still and, and have lunch and dinner with he and his wife quite often. And he was trying to move into a position where he could coordinate for the two different schools in our district that have PLTW. And they needed someone to replace him. Tim, the guy that I've worked with now for the past 14, 15 years, has has done everything from working at NASA as a third party to to being a manager of a bookstore of a Barnes & Noble to just being, I think he started as a GE engineer. And this guy was across the hall, had never been teaching, was, he's 20 years older than me, so he was 47, I think, when we started. And he's, I think, turning 60 this year. So we're, we've been doing this for a while, but he had no experience with teaching. And I came in for that interview after spending three years in a place that did not support what I felt was good. I was at a, a magnet school for the arts. And I, like I said, I'm a bit of an artist myself. And so I thought, this is perfect. Cool. But I, I learned that I'm just doing the same things over and over again every day. I'm not building anything of substance. So I found a school, a program that wanted a new person to come in and help restart this. So when I came into that interview, that was what got my goat. That was what I came down. I talked to this guy. He told me his background. He told me what he saw as a vision. And I said, Tim, that's perfect. That's exactly what I see. So if they hire me, here's every idea that I have. And we sat down for two hours of that interview and just assumed they were going to hire me and just started bouncing ideas off of each other. And then, and that was around Thanksgiving of that year. And it was almost three fourths of a year before they contacted me again and said, everything's good. Please come in. I was already looking at, at other positions. So we started that program back up because these guys were leaving that we both replaced and it was floundering. In fact, one Mm -hmm. of the guys that, that brought, PLTW to the state was at that school and he brought it in and then the next year bolted. So it just, it never had legs. (laughs) It never had legs. Right. What was, what made it, what made it start to work really well? It's two things, the families. So the parents and the students that we did have in the program already, and it wasn't many, we were lucky to get 60 kids every year coming in and we're more than double that now. And then the two of us, right? So Tim and Adam coming in and saying, here's this new young guy with these fresh ideas. And here's this guy that 
He's not old, but he's established. This is his second career. Actually, this is more like his fourth career. But he is doing this because he wants to change education. He wants to better education. He came to Riverside to teach math and science and got talked into teaching engineering uh, and tech ed. He got talked into doing lateral entry. So three years of him going through a bunch of classes to try and figure out how to teach. So for three years, I worked with Tim on here's how you approach students this way, because I'd already had three years on him as a teacher at that point. And so I was giving him kind of the, the heads up of, this is what you're going to see. This is what you're going to do. And that solidified a solid relationship between the two of us. That showed him that he was in a place where he could trust the person that he was working with. He had a very difficult time with that with some of the other places. He wouldn't stay anywhere longer than seven years at a place. And he realized that there was more of a, a bond between the two of us because we had this similar idea of building a program that would pull from all these different schools that would re-energize the idea of STEM and, and engineering in our area. So in, in the Durham area, because nothing like that existed. Parents started to pick up on this and we started to develop uh, REPAC, which is our Riverside Engineering Parent Action Council. We did that the second year. That was actually Tim and me and my wife. And we brought all these parents together for a meeting and we said, these are the things that aren't happening that we need to happen. And we're educators, so our voice is falling on deaf ears. Your parents, your voice won't. And with the stroke of a pen on three letters and, and two days later, things that were not happening that needed to happen for us to be successful were happening. And then that just took off. From there, we have that parent organization is now a 501c3. I'm part of the Programs and Grants Committee. We're submitting for... for tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars in grants now. We're working cross-curriculum with our OCS and EC department. So we've gone from 60 kids crossing our fingers, hope we get them, struggling to teach four courses between the two of us to now offering, I don't know, something like nine courses. We have a computer science program. We have a, a fabrication lab with tons of digital fabrication. And we've done it through that hard work and injecting into it a little bit of caring, a little bit of love, some dedication, and parents who want to make sure their uh, voice is heard and that their kids' voices are heard. And that happens because that's how Durham is as a community. So hopefully that's something that continues. We are now facing, we're at the, Tim and I are seeing it as we're at the back end of what we've built. So you're coming in with this interview, hearing the end results of everything. This is we, everything we planned for in 2007, we've now obtained and we're now we're replanning and we're trying to think who's going to do this when we leave, when Tim retires, then when I retire and bringing in these new young guys that, that you had a chance to talk to a little bit last year is a, a huge part of that plan and making sure that they're as involved as possible to keep this, as we like to say at Riverside, because we're the pirates, to keep this boat rowing, to keep it going. It must be so satisfying to you that you 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 set out with these ambitious plans and have built a great program. So I want to ask a question that won't surprise you at all. From your perspective, what is the value of 3D printing to engineering education at the high school level? Yeah, it's it was the first digital fabrication that we brought in. 
it was what I was introduced to as being probably the most in, influential, most important type of of rapid prototyping, basically, as being the the number one thing that you need to have in an engineering program. And of course, this came from, like I said, uh, both professionals and people at the college level. And when you're talking to these university professionals about what it is that they're doing with 3D printing, what they're doing with, with various different types of digital fabrication, the number one thing, the first thing that they go to is 3D printing. It's useful for specifically for what we're doing for rapid prototyping. But we utilize it as final products for what a lot of the kids create. Now, and I think I've shown you before some photos and pictures of some of the stuff that these kids have done. For years, our first course, Introduction to Engineering Design, which we call, unfortunately, IED, that class had a project called Puzzle Cube. And one of the things that we did with the puzzle cube, which is just a, a three by three block of five parts that all fit together. So the kids have to figure out what's the solution and are there, is there more than one solution? And, and they started with the prototype. The final result was wooden blocks glued together, colored with markers in, a, in a, an unfolded box that they created the net pattern for and then folded up and taped together and decorated the outside. And that's how that started. And then that turned into, we have this printer. Now we have these four printers, these five, six printers. Now every team in every class could have a printer dedicated to them for 90 minutes at a time. So then print jobs turn to, okay, yes, you have the wooden blocks. Yes, you have a, a, a mock-up now of what this solution looks like. And you've got it on paper. So now start printing these blocks. And let's figure out, one, how to use the printers. How can we start putting them into play? And then how do we take that a step further and make them clean and neat and feel like a final product as opposed to something that was done rapid? So that made us teach the kids not only what a printer is or, or what a slicer software is, but how do you maximize the, the, the use of it so that you can not only print your parts and know that they're going to work when they come off the printer, but then print your packages. This changed everything about that project instead of folding up paper and having some cute little box we had packages that had sliding doors that would open up we had an r2d2 that had a head that came off and inside they used a, the ultimaker 3 for both of those the dual extrusion right so they had the death star they had three different solutions to their cube and if you solved it the correct way the death star was on all six sides inlaid with silver on black uh, because they used the dual extrusion. The R2-D2 body was what, uh, eight, 10 inches tall. The head came off. You put the plans for it. So all these designs slid into the face of the R2-D2. Uh, it was cute. We had some just tremendous effort go into the kids learning the skill of using the printer of the software. It reinforced what they were learning with the CAD software that PLTW required that they used, which we were using Inventor at the time. Mm -hmm. And the connection between those two, between the curriculum that we have to teach them to the equipment and the software that goes with it that produced a result better than they had ever seen before meant that the kids were not only learning something that was going to be useful for them at university levels, but it also pulled them in. There's pictures that I have of me going out to schools 
and taking a 3D printer and little middle school kids just gathering it because it's the first time they've ever seen it. They think it comes from the air. They don't even understand how it works. And there are adults that I talk to that I we take this stuff and it's like magic to them. They just are mesmerized by watching it. So to to be able to do something that was once thought of as being you got to have $200,000 for this SLA machine and yeah, you get a result and it comes out four hours later too. I can make a puzzle cube that looks fantastic in a matter of an hour and a half with a package and everything. It really, it pulled the kids in, it pulled the parents in, it pulled the community in to include the, the companies and, and people that we were working with. We've been able to do everything from those puzzle cubes to now we're doing automatas that the kids create. And then that led to my kids saying, but what's this machine that's over here? And we've got the shot bot running or we got the laser cutter, we got a boss laser in the corner of the lab running. And it starts with their understanding of here's what G code is. Here's how it's used on a 3D printer. This is what an XYZ coordinate system does. This is why the bed is heated. This is why the nozzle is at this temperature. We get into materials and understanding the tensile strength of them or the compression strength of them. Or why do you print at 18% or 20% infill instead of 50 or 60. And when should you print at a 50 or 60% infill and why? What are, you, what are you looking to get out of it? Getting them to understand some of the terminology of what a shell is versus what the, the infill is and what the different settings are for those and why. Getting them to tinker with why I should change that setting to get these results. And to loop this back around to what we were talking about at the beginning of all of this, it reinforces that enrichment. It helps them understand mm -hmm. that this curriculum is here for you to use, but this equipment is here for you to take this curriculum and blow it out of the water. I used the Ultimakers because we had a, we had one printer come in from a donor's choose. It was not supported by the district. And this was just our way of saying, look, we need to bring in digital fabrication. We need to bring in 3D printing. And this was a decade ago almost. And it took two years, but then we were able to work with people over at UNC to help us convince the district, to convince our director, 3D printing is something that needs to happen. And this is the company that we need to go with because this is the kind of printers that they're making. And, and here's what we're expecting from them. And that, that's how we got onto using Ultimakers. And then it was, we brought in three and then all of a sudden it was, I had three more and then Somebody left at another school and they weren't using their printer. And so that school program was shut down and I got their printer. And then it was, hey, I'd like to try out these threes. Let me see what these threes are like. And so I got two of those, you know, and, and then it was, hey, it was cheaper for me to go ahead and buy you a, a two at the same time. So here's an extra one to go along with it. I've had people donate them from people at Duke to it. So it's a product that's out there that we know works. And then we also know that... PLTW will allow us to, to utilize it forever. Uh, in fact, when they start telling us that they're not agnostic with the equipment is when we might have to, to think twice about what we're doing with them. The Ultimaker 2 Pluses have been a staple 3D printer in our program for many years. They are the workhorse of the rapid prototyping that our students use, have, and they absolutely love using them every single day. The new class is called Engineering Design and Development, and it's only new to us. Oh. It's actually been around for right. a while. It's, it's like our freshman course or like our first year course, like IED, but on steroids. It's if you took everything that the kids learn as they progress through 
intro to engineering design, principles of engineering. We, we still make every kid take digital electronics as well. Then they can start branching out. So if you take all of those courses, plus any of the specialty ones, computer integrated manufacturing, civil engineering and architecture, any of the computer science courses, whether that be computer science essentials, computer science principles, we're going to be soon teaching computer science applications. We have a cybersecurity class. Any of those courses, right? It's a lot of classes and a lot of really good ones too. Any of those courses that these kids take when they're seniors, we offered it this year. We can't offer it next year because of staffing purposes. There's just not, there's too many, the numbers don't line up, but we will be offering it the year after. But when they come in, they know, based on a conversation that we have over summer, they know that the intent is you set uh, you set the ground rules basically for the kids, but they set what it is that they're going to be working on. It's an open-ended, project-based, awesome. completely project-based class. So they solve a problem that they decide on, and in the end, they are presenting what I refer to as the final defense to a panel of experts. They have mentors, they have field experts, they have people within the industry, people outside of the industry, whomever they can find to help them get through the process. Now, I am just glazing over all of what goes into it, but it is a huge endeavor for the students and for the teachers that are that do teach it. But it resulted in some just in some phenomenal work that we saw from the kids this year. We had 21 kids take the course this year, four different teams. And there were a couple of them that they got a week or two in and they said, this is not for me. And they left and that's understandable. But the ones that stuck through it, it's, I think it's changed their, I wouldn't say their life, but it's changed how they have seen their time with us. It's changed what they see as being the pinnacle of their education. And a lot of them say that is now this course, but it's not, it is not for everybody, but that's the new course that we brought in. That's a, that sounds amazing. It sounds a, a lot of what you'd you'd want to come out of a capstone experience, but but maybe with deep learning still deeply engaged. I guess curriculum did, all yeah. streamlined with. It. That's amazing. So does three D printing play play a role in that one? So <laughs> yes, it would absolutely optionally. normally play a role. I did. I brought home th- four three D printers. I brought home two two yeah. pluses, uh, a two plus extended, and a three extended. And and we did some three D printing in the fall with some of the IED kids as we were trying to figure out what did and did not work. And what we have come to realize is that the kids can't use Inventor at home. And these capstone kids were just, right. you know, that was what they knew. So they had to quickly learn on shape and to try and get them to relearn a new software and be familiar with the slicer well enough that they could then just send me a file and say, Hey, print this did not, go so well for them. And we had to quickly think about what does your prototyping look like? We had a couple of kids that did, or a team that did try to do some 3D printing. And and the end result was that they couldn't get their hand on it. So they couldn't do the actual testing. We could print it, but then how do I get it to them with being so remote and it being so last minute that they printed it? We had a team that they made yep. socks. They did compression socks. And so they didn't even model theirs. Theirs was all hand-drawn sketches of the pattern layouts and stuff. And then we had a team that did an umbrella, a biodegradable umbrella. 
And they really wanted to do some 3D printing and they, some of them had their own 3D printers at home and they printed some of how, like little models, little mock-ups of it about this big of how things would slide and, and, and work together. And that was nice, but they didn't get to use the ones that I brought home because again, for the same reason, how do you get it to them? How do they, once they print it and they assemble it, great. It's difficult to get to them. And then we had a, another team that did a, a water filtration system and they didn't wind up needing anything 3D printed for theirs. But the intent is that the 3D printing will be used for uh, rapid prototyping. And then once they have certain aspects of their uh, solution created and they, they can see how it functions. So this is where it's gonna differ from say the, the freshman course or something we're doing with civil engineering or with computer integrated manufacturing is that instead of printing something that you're going to put into production or, or, or something that you're going to use in the real world as a solution to your product, this would be more of, you need to test that idea and see if that's going to work, see if that component's going to work. And that's what the Ultimakers will do for them when we get to that stage. And then they'll get into, okay, but this piece I need to actually mill, or this piece needs to get laser cut, or I, we need to bring in some sort of injection molding machine to, to help them get this part done correctly. Uh, or they need to outsource it to someone else. But yeah, the intent is that everything, including and starting with the 3D printers in our lab, will be used for that course. Absolutely. Hmm. And we do, we use so, that actually. We use 3D printers a lot more in computer integrated manufacturing as well. So it's part of the yeah, curriculum. Makes now. Sense. Yeah, it's, Wait, uh, you it's something that, that they have to use? make. Yeah, yeah, they do have to make a bunch of different parts in that class. So they, they do some modeling for uh, the purposes of being able to do an analysis for its weight, its mass, its volume, and that kind of stuff. And then we tie that into how would you go about fabricating it? What are the best ways to do it? Right now, in fact, starting tomorrow when I take over SIM, that course is getting into a discussion, a lecture, and then a project based around rapid prototyping slash additive manufacturing. And so getting them into that concept and working with those machines is what we're focusing on now. So we are having them create everything that they need to right up until printing. But because we can't print in, this, in the, the state that we're in now, they wouldn't. They also are required to use the 3D printers as part of their factory that they do at the end of the semester. And they have to we force their hands. You have to find something within each segment of the factory that you create that is a 3D printed part. And not only do you have to 3D print it, but it has to be iterated over and over again until you figure out exactly the settings that you need to get it to function properly for what it is. Because again, it's they're good machines for rapid prototyping. And with the right material and the right settings, you can take that prototyped piece and make it something, at least for what we're doing, that functions as a real world part. And then our robotics uh, team used it quite a bit for the same thing. You might want to go and check out one of the sessions in the Ultimaker Transformation Summit conference. We did a session on how we use 3D printed parts in our own factory. And there's like we use like 500 parts. We go pretty hardcore. It's not surprising. But we really do eat our own dog food. And in there are some really interesting examples that I think, in particular, we're really pushing fast some ideas are coming from separate parts altogether. So we're getting all these really great notions from working with top enterprise uh, manufacturing companies of how yeah. various sites need safety equipment. And like the safety stuff is really a big deal, but the different pro different 
plants do safety different ways or slightly different. There's, there's OSHA standards uh, they have to follow. Sure. Yeah, they're meeting standards, but they're but they're but the plants aren't standardized. And so those are the two interesting right. things. So you can have a guidance, but you can realize that actually custom solutions are often the way to meet those standards, especially from the equipment. So anyway, you could see stuff that might be of interest to some of your students to see some ways that performance polymers, et cetera, can take a you know a fairly simple, fairly boring part and really solve a problem in ways that were, were solved with mostly with like milled steel and stuff. Which is extravagance. It's really not needed, and the the uh, in some cases the polymer part lasts longer. Right, it's just right. really kind of interesting to see. But anyway, I, th that's separate from what we're talking about here. But what I wanted to yeah, you've talked about this. You've danced around this a little bit, and right before we okay. started with the official questions, you mentioned this. So, how are you approaching three D printing in the COVID era, especially with your site, your Fab Lab? itself not being deemed uh, a large enough a free enough circulation space to really be uh, right now. All right. Yeah. And then additionally, not only is it, you've seen the lab space, it's a fairly large enough room. There's just, there's no windows. There's not good circulation, but then the 3d printers themselves are back in another lab space within that. Uh, and it's not the biggest room in the world. So if we have to keep kids six feet apart still come, come August, which I don't think that we will, but if we do, or if we were back in the setting that we're in now, the number one thing that we would do is make sure that as long as the district allowed us to continue to use equipment and let the kids touch them without having to wait 72 hours for them to be sanitized again, which yeah. is an issue. One of the things that we had talked about doing is moving them and putting them, even though I do have the extra ones that I'm working on to get into the other teacher's hands, but get them spread out among not just the lab space, but the other classrooms down there in the engineering wing to try and get them to use them in some of the other courses as well. Because what are some things that you think you've picked up from this COVID era, from some of the adaptions that were mm. required to, to deal with a sudden go to, to virtual and then now hybrid? What are some things that, that you think yeah, particularly in the 3D printing arena, but in general, that you that will stick around for a while and will be useful to your program. So one of the things that has been probably the most useful for me being virtual is that I was able to bring home a document camera eventually. And when I'm mm -hmm. teaching kids about the sketching that goes into some of the engineering classes that they have to do, the hand sketching, or understanding what an isometric looks like, or what does this object look like if I'm looking at it in a multi-view? One of the things that we were able to do a few years ago was print every single part that we could ever imagine using in these engineering courses. Now, of course, they, and a lot of them are just weird geometric shapes that if you've taken any CAD class, you're familiar with what they are. And we were able to print a bunch of those in the past. And it, we found that in the past, it was really useful to hand them to the kid and say, okay, you're to sketch this, look at it from a front view, you should see these shapes. And that was incredibly hmm. useful for the kid. And that little manipulative helped them out. But having a document camera and having brought home and they're over here on my floor, just a, I'm not gonna pick them up because it would make a terrible noise, but having all of them at the ready and be able to show in those different stances really helped me Great. with being able to teach those kids. So it was something that we had put into place as an opportunity to hand them to the kids so that we didn't have to sit there and walk them step by step through it. They were able to look at it. 
And and in the end, we turned that back around and we said, now it's us having to hold it and show them. But we were able to do that digitally and only because we had the physical object with us. Right. So that's one of the things, especially related to, to any kind of 3D printing that we found to be really useful for that freshman course. The other things that I think we're going to take with us as we leave this horrible pandemic era is how digital everything is. We had recently switched from just having big, thick notebooks and kids would make giant portfolios and all this stuff to making them more digitized. And this is circle back Mm -hmm. around to how do you keep the program running? Bringing these new guys in forced our hands to, this is what you're doing in college. This is what we're now going to be doing here. You're in charge of implementing this. And so these new guys started to put into practice things like forcing those of us that are older to use, uh, we used Google Classroom. And that was what got us started with moving everything digital and using Google um, Docs and slides and, you know, sheets instead of Excel. And going that route with our curriculum helped us be able to transition from what we were doing just prior to the pandemic to now being in the pandemic state. And now we're using Canvas. The district finally decided that that was the system they wanted. And I personally, Matt, I I fought against that at first. I thought, oh my God, I just learned how to use Classroom. Now I've got to learn how to use Canvas. But a deep dive, Davidson can do anything kind of mentality into it. (laughs) And I'm not kidding. I put in over 400 hours this summer just in developing the EDD course on Canvas. But I filmed myself getting a good camera, getting a good mic. I had already put some YouTube videos out there for the kids to go look at so I could be in 20 places at once. But now I could go in. I had the time to be able to go in and the resources to be able to go in and make a video for each assignment for that EDD course. So the kids could hear me go through it with them in class, but then could go back and start looking at it and seeing how to implement a particular assignment. That is a huge takeaway that Now we're looking at, well, how do we use something like this YouTube channel to train the kids so that they don't have to stay until 6 p.m. at night at our school to get this initial training on, say, lab safety or what Cura is in the different settings that you need. Obviously, you'll need to be there to use the 3D printer, but it's going to change we think it's going to change how we do the trainings for some of these pieces of equipment like the 3D printers. Now that I'm working with the Library Media Center, we have to train them. And to be able to put this in one location and say, here is the, the multitude of knowledge that you need to have to move forward with the next step. Here it is digitally. We developed this because we had to because we were in this pandemic state. And so now the, the the library media center, or then the library media center, will be able to access that, which means all the rest of the staff will, and all the rest of the kids will. So that is something that I think we're going to really be carrying forward. One of the things the kids are struggling the most with is, I don't want to say it's boredom, but it is, you get so inundated with, okay, cool, I saw a video of how that works, but I'm not actually doing it, right? Or Neat. I filled out another spreadsheet based on this data that was provided to me instead of getting the data myself. And so getting them to utilize those tools is ideal. If we were back in person, the number one thing that we would do is start spreading those printers out so that they could use them. Because 
we can sanitize those quickly. We can get them cleaned up and even we have enough of them now that we could stage them so that this one is the one that's running today. This was one of the things that we would do if we were going back to full on in person. Right now, as it stands, the three guys that are back in person, I think they have seven, eight kids among the three of them total that are showing up every day. My room is shut down. It's being used mostly as a storage space right now. The four 3D printers that I brought home, we have been using. We do tell the kids it is there for you. You can send me the files, we can print them, and then if you're coming back to the school, we can get the parts to you. I've had a couple of kids from last semester that they had a couple of projects that they really wanted to get their hands on. But none of that, in my opinion, is related directly to COVID. Now, the number one way that I think we impacted both education and COVID with our 3D printers is to create... Uh, opportunities for me, for the other guys in, in, in the engineering program, and for the students to participate in creating PPE. And I'm sure this is something that other people have, yep. have probably talked to you about doing. We were able to get a 3D printer in the hands of a kid over the summer who created thousands of ear savers for a program that he was working with. I worked with the North Carolina academic makerspace people to create uh, a bunch of equipment that was needed for face shields or a bunch of pieces that were needed for the face shields. So that was really nice. And and we were able to get some of the kids last spring involved in some of that. I was able to get that kid involved over the summer. And then with this past fall, we were able to get a few kids that wanted to jump on board with some of it as well. And they were able to get their hands on a, a couple of our 3D printers for a few days to to do some more PPE equipment for people that needed it at the school. So they, they have a connection with uh, their parents being in education as well and being able to print mm-hmm. some of the stuff for their parents' schools so that their teachers had what they needed. Okay. And then we wound up not being back in person until this semester. So it's getting used now, but not as effectively as we would have liked. So that is, that's some of the ways that we've been able to, to, to use it during this time, but it is, it's more of a pre-planning. Let's get you to the point where you're able to design the things that you need. And then when it comes time for us to be able to be back in person, we can start printing these. So what are some ways that you hope 3D printing will be of use to your program going forward? Now that you and and Tim are, are looking at the next era uh, of the right. program there and thinking where you might go, what are some things that are on the top of your imagination there? So. The number one thing that for me professionally that I think going forward with 3D printing is going to be that I'm hoping to be working with the district at more of an administrative level of what is the equipment that we're bringing in, what pieces Mm -hmm. of it need to be updated and that kind of stuff. And then part of that job will be to also help the people within the district, the the staff, if you will, the the teachers, to get their hands on some of the training that has to help Mm. them be in place to to help them go forward. So that's something that I know I'm going to be doing. And we're going to start with 3D printing because one of the biggest problems we have is that teachers have a 3D printer that's been sitting there for years and they're not using it uh, because they don't know how. So that's, that's a big push. And that's, that's why I bring mm-hmm. up that training because that's something that I, I've talked with. There's a, a couple of teachers at my school that 
they have kids come into the lab and I'm totally okay with this. They, they come into the lab with a project in mind for their course. And they say, I want to use this. I want to do this. And they show up three days later and they have, I had a, a young lady a couple of years ago. She wanted to create uh, a physical example of a uterus and two ovaries. And one ovary was infested with cancer and the other one was normal. And then she was able to paint it and label it and all this stuff. And she showed up for that anatomy class and it wowed her teacher. And so that teacher, of course, now wants to know how can the rest of her students use it. And the, the yeah. takeaway there is how do you use it? So how do I now start to convince the other staff members this is where it needs to be used? So that is probably the number one thing on my mind when it comes to 3D printing specifically is how do I make sure that it goes beyond just Davidson knows how this machine works and he knows how to fix it. How do I get the other guys using it? How do I get the rest of the school using it? How do I get the district to be as bought into it as the few of us that, that are in the district? For class specifically, man, we are already at this point using those printers nearly every day, all day long. And the, the kids are printing stuff, usually early in the semester, they're printing stuff that's fun. You were talking about how the degradation of their knowledge, just it starts to go away if they don't use it. So they get trained early and then they come to us and they say, what do I make now? I know how to use this 3D printer, but cool. I printed this little flexi dinosaur. How do I now, what do I do next? Because their project hasn't gotten to the point where they need to be printing for it. So the early part right. of the semester is... The older kids are coming in and they're tinkering and they're playing and they're making the chess pieces or the D&D club is printing stuff or the TSA kids are coming over and they're making things for projects that they're working on. Or other teachers are coming down and they're saying, can you train me on how to use it? So we're constantly using them that way. But we are always looking for ways that the kids can make a prototype, make something physical that they can hold in their hand to, to demonstrate either their knowledge of what they've created. We've worked with staff in the past on like math staff on, you need a math manipulative. You want to show how you count by tens or how you count by tenths by decimal places. And we would make them various different manipulatives for that. One of the big things that we want to do going forward is, is helping the OCS and EC department who we've recently worked with on creating vertical gardens for their oh. greenhouse spaces that they run is now to work with them on how do we make devices that your kids that are struggling with maybe being able to open a door, these adaptive devices, how can we help you all figure out the best adaptive devices for those students and then get them created for you. And so that's something that we hope to, to utilize specifically the 3D printers, as well as some random materials to go along with them, depending on what the adaptive device is. So that's, those are some of the big projects that we see going forward. And of course, we're going to continue to use them for every, every, pretty much every project we do that requires some sort of physical product. It starts with the 3D printers and sometimes even finishes with the 3D printers. Thanks again to Adam. We'll return to meet Mary Hadley, CEO of Maker Girl, shortly. This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast. If you've been eagerly waiting the Ultimaker Turns 10 bonus episodes, we have some exciting news. The oral history project that sparked that series of mini episodes was a big hit internally at Ultimaker, and we have opted to share one of these on the alternating Tuesdays between each of the full-length episodes 
for Talking Additive on into the fall. This is a new experiment for us. Some Talking Additive to enjoy every single Tuesday, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did capturing these amazing interviews. And stay tuned for two more Ultimaker Turns 10 related episodes at the end of Season 3. On July 20th, we have Episode 29, featuring the story of Ultimaker Kira. And on August 3rd, closing out the season, we have We Are Ultimaker, a story that celebrates the humans more than the plastic squirting robots, showcasing some of the passionate people who have fallen in love with 3D printing technology and their unique routes to Ultimaker and to working in the 3D printing industry. You can read more about the rest of the season on Ultimaker's blog with the article Talking Additive Season 3, Looking Back and Ahead. Enjoy Talking Additive? We'd appreciate it if you would subscribe and post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. And we encourage you to catch up on past episodes with some of our favorite Ultimaker Innovators List guests, including Matthew Forrester at L'Oreal, Matt Terosian from Jabil, and many more. We now return to episode 26, 3D Printing and Education in the Post-COVID Era, with an interview with Mary Hadley, CEO of Maker Girl. I'm Mary Hadley, and I'm the CEO of Maker Girl. Mary, thank you very much for coming and joining Talking Out of today. Really a thrill to catch up with uh, Maker Girl and hear what you all have been up to. Awesome. So excited to be here. I joined Maker Girl as a university volunteer in the summer of 2017. However, I started as a full-time employee in 2019 as a CEO. Maker Girl was founded at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2014 out of a social entrepreneurship class when the professor asked, what bothers you? Our co-founders, Julia Harried and Elizabeth Angley, chose that really girls in STEM and also the lack of women um, leadership roles really bothered them. So they introduced Maker Girl, which was at first just a school project, but pushed by a professor, Noah Easterman, into much more. And so they were able to host, I think, about three to four 3D printing sessions in 2014 at the space in Geese for Business at University of Illinois. They have a whole lot of Ultimaker 3D printers there, and that was our first experience. Undergrad, I actually studied chemistry. In all of my classes, I was seeing gender inequality. And even in one of my calc classes, I was one of the only girls in our breakout rooms. So that was just something that really discouraged me in such a large university that I came home and started complaining to my roommates about it. And one of my roommates was like, I have this nonprofit that I'm a part of. Do you want to be a part of this? They're going into trying to teach girls at such a young age how to get into STEM fields. And I was like, anything, I will get into that. So I ended up dropping all my summer courses to go on the road trip that summer. I actually joined the Maker Girl team three days before we left on our 2017 Maker Girl Goes Mobile road trip, which is a road trip where we pack 13 Ultimaker 3D printers into a van and take them around the United States. So actually, I learned about 3D printing three days before going to teach 500 girls how to 3D print. Basically throughout the entire summer, I was taking apart 3D printers inside of hotel rooms, putting them back together before driving to a new city to pop up another Maker Girl session and teach about 25 young students about 3D printing. I definitely had to watch many Ultimaker help videos on the website and go through and take it apart. And it was basically a learn by trial and error, but it was super exciting. And I think a really rewarding process just to watch each girl be able to see her 3D print printed out in front of her and get to take that home. What inspired the Maker Girls as far as how to make a real difference with the age group that, that you all are working with? Yeah, so there's plenty of research that shows that girls start saying no to STEM opportunities around age 11 and 12. 
So Maker Girl really wanted to target that area right beforehand. So just showing a really unique opportunity to showing 3D printing and how creative skills and technical skills can work together to really show how STEM is being used in a variety of industries. I think a lot of nonprofits that do similar work to us focus on older age ranges around high school. So that would be past the time where girls are already saying no. So you're getting girls that are very already involved or trying to turn them at an age that's almost impossible at that point. So we really wanted to make that first initial curriculum based around ages seven to 10 to really give that initial exposure um, beforehand. Why is 3D printing and design for 3D printing an excellent vehicle to help inspire these girls with this possibility? Yeah, so we have found that 3D printing really shows the beauty of both creative and technical skills for STEM and really shows girls that there's way more than just hard technical skills to STEM and showing the different industries also helps in this way. And beyond that, we really love just being able to create your own design to make it really unique and customizable, something there's not an end product that you have to get to. It's really your choice how your project finishes. And so that's something that we were really excited about, which is why we really emphasize getting their project to them. Um, whether it means in person or via mail. And that's something that we've really been excited about 3D printing, but also CAD design shows girls about spatial skills, which is an early indicator of achievement in mathematics, which has a gap that's been proven in girls and boys in later grades. Paint a picture of what your experience was like learning this on the road, having you know this opportunity to meet girls uh, who hadn't had exposure to this all over the country. Yeah, basically it was four weeks long and we had to travel, I think we went to six states. So this was the second Maker Girl Goes Mobile tour. We really focused on Midwestern states. And so I drove from Champaign all the way to Michigan and then all the way back over to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it was really fun to be able to make a lot of pop-up shops in maker spaces. I hadn't really been in the 3D printing community just yet. And so to be able to meet all of these different coordinators at Makerspaces really helped me along the way. I would ask every question I had. We went to a maker fair. I was asking different booths for help if a printer was down. I was carrying printers for like blocks at certain points if parking was too far. It was just pretty wild what we did, but it was super fun. Like I said, really rewarding to be able to show girls not even the technology of 3D printing, but also being able to show how their own design can be transformed right in front of them, which is so cool and so rewarding for them to really be able to gain that confidence of what they make is actually valuable and that can actually be customizable to themselves. That's fantastic. I would love it if you would introduce to Talking Out of Listeners the kinds of sessions that you would hold and what kind of experiences the girls coming would have before the major changes quite recently? Yeah, so pre-pandemic, our sessions, we had one style of session, which is now our introduction to 3D printing sessions, our level one. We have over 20 themes of those to choose from, those themes being different industries where 3D printing is being used. So we start each session with introducing girls on how that industry is using 3D printing, giving them real world examples, showing them how the 3D printer works in real time, and then having them create their own design. So they go through the process of creating their own little CAD design, and then they would watch it print right in front of them. So in that second hour of curriculum, they would be doing another STEM activity that related to that industry of the day. So we have different to choose from, and we had a lot of different styles from either aviation, architecture, jewelry making, passion for fashion. We had so many themes to choose from that girls would consistently come back. We knew that we wanted to keep expanding. So from the flagship location in Champaign, we decided to expand to Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. And that was Maker Girl's second, what we call Maker Girl Academies. 
Since then, we've gone on to establish academies in the Boston area with students from Harvard and Holt, as well as the University of Texas at Austin, the San Francisco area with students from a variety of schools around there, as well as we almost expanded to the University of Michigan, but that one in person is on pause until after COVID. So we are really key on volunteers and really passionate volunteers at the universities, especially women and men that are studying STEM. It's really great just to have those key mentors for the girls. If they can see themselves in our volunteers, then they really know that this is possible for them. So we really recruit a diverse group of awesome university volunteers that are the backbone of Maker Girl, our change makers. And at different universities, we've targeted different groups, whether it's the women in engineering groups or other groups on such campuses that would be really excited about projects like Maker Girl and really enroll them in the idea that they could be the next generation's role models in 3D printing space. That's basically how we get our groups of university volunteers. We've also worked at some schools. We are going to open a Maker Girl Academy at the Milwaukee School of Engineering, and that's working with their faculty first. So they just opened a beautiful STEM center who really wanted to have outreach to K through 12 and really working with local organizations that could do such. That's how we got to partner with faculty who will then bring in the university students. But beforehand, we usually worked with university students who then reached out to faculty to really get them involved and invested in the idea. A lot of the in-school, out-of-school, after-school camps, etc., who were trying to bring hands-on experiences and enrichment to learners, particularly young learners, a lot of them stopped or had to completely change how they functioned. How did Maker Girls deal with the disruption of COVID-19? In April of 2020, we realized that we had no virtual presence beforehand, except for a few fun YouTube videos. So we got to work on what we could really create out of that and what virtual experiences we really wanted to be a part of. So at first we just started giving parents YouTube videos of us just talking through our sessions so they could have free access to STEM activities to keep their kids occupied and also having these after school experiences. And then we realized we should really just turn our sessions into a virtual experience that they could join our change makers live. So in June of 2020, we launched a modified version of our two hour level one programming into a one hour programming mostly because that second hour was devoted to 3D printing live, <laughs> but then also we wanted to make sure that we kept kids' attention for that full one hour. So it still broke down into showing kids how 3D printing is being used in a variety of industries, then going into a breakout room to have that more one-on-one -on -one experience about four kids with our change makers and being able to create their own design. And then they came back in the room and they could either share their design with everyone in the room by either screen share or anything like that and tell us what their difficulties were, how they handled it, what they created instead, and then also learn about famous women in STEM in that industry. So we definitely pivoted a little bit, but we've been running those virtual sessions since June. And I think right now we have educated over 600 girls virtually. So with no virtual presence in 2020, turned into 600 girls educated through our virtual platform, which we're really excited about. That's really exciting. So congratulations for making that fast pivot when many are still struggling to figure out strategies. It begs the question, how how do you bring 3D printing alive when the students can't really see them hands-on? What have you done with both the instructions, the conversations, and the demos, et cetera, to really make sure that you have a similar kind of impact as you, you did on the road? Yeah, we've had to use a lot of photos and videos. It's a little bit harder since we had to get creative with where the 3D printers were and which change makers had access and things like that. So we really had to get creative on how to show them 3D printers during the session. However, we still wanted to make sure every single maker girl got their 3D print. 
So we decided to print off each design and actually mail them home after each session. So that way, that really important piece of seeing their creation come to life. Now you have to wait a couple of weeks or a few weeks since sometimes when places close down to receive that item. Basically, one of our colors in Maker Girls logo is pink. So we sent home a pink bubble mailer. We really wanted to make sure it was identifiable to that Maker Girl who was waiting at her doorstep for her 3D item. She received it, got a really cute thank you card that she could have with her, as well as her 3D design. That's really amazing. Tell me about the process of producing them. How, how did you manage that? 600, that's, that's a lot of printing. Yes, last summer it was a little bit easier because we could give our change makers basically their own little 3D printing lab inside their apartments. When we went back on campus or when students went back to school, they had to find places that they could host house these 3D printers. A lot of them had roommates in small spaces. So we were using places that we used to go to in campus to actually go back and be able to use it as a 3D printing lab, as well as we did team up with MHub in Chicago, who helped us print a very large quantity of our fall prints. As we had 130 students from two schools in Delaware go through our program, and we needed some help to print those. <laughs> That's amazing. And, and, and that program was in person, right? So the students were in person, but we were virtual. So it was our first time testing out oh, what we called right. like our hybrid program. So that is actually what we're going to do this summer, which we're really excited about since it worked well the first time. Oh, excellent. Do you have advice for educators who are looking to learn how they can continue to use 3D printing and 3D design in their classes for solutions like this? Uh, I know a, a lot of programs are going back in person in the fall. There, there are complications to that, including access equipment and, and how they, they handle these things. It sounds like you had a lot of success with some of these solutions. What, what would you share with other educators? Yeah, I would definitely share to find different makers in your local community. I think especially during the time where many of these makers turn to helping print out PPE are now looking to help just any local community, whether it's their local school or anything like that. So using free softwares online and really getting, being able to connect others in the community to help you do that printing or seeing what you can really access in that space. I think even just making your own 3D design is really amazing, but then hopefully later finding that access to a 3D printer, whether it's a local library or a local maker or makerspace itself to help bring those creations to life is something that I would give advice on, as I feel like there was a lot of 3D printers that were hidden that people didn't know about or didn't know about the access. And slowly over 2020, we really started to see where are they? How does, how does the public get access to these and how can these uh, printers or these makers really help support different initiatives around their local community as well? During the pandemic, you've had the opportunity to really do a lot of strategic thinking with the team. Do you want to share some of the new discoveries that, that you all have made as an organization? Yeah, so like I was saying, we launched our virtual sessions in June of last year, really just piloting do children and do their parents like these ideas of our virtual sessions? It turned out that so many girls kept coming back over and over again, selling out the sessions, basically creating their own summer camps out of it, where we really knew that we needed to give them a next step. There was about, I think, five maker girls who have gone through 20 to 40 of our sessions. And like I said, we only have 20. So that means they either completed every single version we had or have done them twice. So those are really special moments that we knew, okay, let's offer them another offering. So we really took a step back and decided to come up with what we're calling our Maker Girl Journey, which is a pipeline of curriculum from age seven to 22. That last piece being becoming a change maker and being able to teach the sessions themselves. And the first being our level one introduction to 3D printing. 
However, when we were brainstorming, what does level two look like? How do we build on the concepts that you learned in level one? We decided to come up with what we're calling the Inventor Series, which is a five week long project based learning program where girls get to create their own project by the end of the program. The first project that we started with is Game Designer. So each girl gets to come up with their own board game or card game. As one girl, she really wanted to take it and make it even more unique, not accepting the board possibility and really coming up with her own unique card game, which still involved 3D printed pieces, which is so fun. But each person gets to create a couple different 3D printed pieces that also go onto their game board. And they go through the different engineering design steps to come up with the best game. What does that look like? How do your friends win and go from there? And we've seen a lot of success through this program. And we're also going to be launching a lot more of them this summer. Every time we try to pivot, or especially this spring when schools started coming back in person or in different hybrid models, we just saw that students were also starting to get sick of different virtualized learning, which definitely was something for us trying to decide what will we do coming this fall? Will people want to even open their laptop and talk to us for an hour? Or what will that start to look like? So for us, what we've started to look into is different hybrid models or even the early stages of what us in person will look like. However, going into spaces, especially when we would go into schools or places anywhere that would take us in, it's a little bit harder still during this reopening. However, we hope that with hybrid models, the students can learn together in the classroom and that we can provide the help to teachers or parents or different groups like Girl Scouts or other parent groups to really be able to provide this on virtually while they're all together being able to still collaborate in person and do all of those things that's really awesome in person, but still get that education from us virtually, whether it's through videos or live. Do you think that you will always maintain uh, a virtual segment? Yeah, I think that's something that was like the one perk of creating virtual content was that it became really easy to be able to educate girls in states that we did not have a physical presence in. So during our virtual sessions, we were able to educate girls in 28 of the 50 states, something that we currently only have a physical presence in about four. So during the year, we do want to keep that virtual presence because it also lets our university students be able to join from any university across the country, whether they're the only one that wants to join Maker Girl or they can slowly try to find other students on their campus to then go off and create a physical space on campus as well. So it gives that dual purpose of having anyone be able to volunteer for us no matter given the campus and also being able to educate any girl around the country who has access to a laptop and Wi-Fi. I think something that we've learned over this last year, especially, is making the curriculum very customizable. We want the projects to become more customizable to each maker girl and be personalized at the end of that and really giving them mentors along the way. I think the number one thing to get more girls into STEM is to find their mentors and be able to also have a space in a community that makes them feel confident in themselves. So we really put on the focus, not only that we want to educate girls in STEM, but we want to give them the STEM confidence that they deserve and the community that we want to build and support them around them, especially not only for our maker girls, but our change makers as well. These university women and men that are studying STEM, we want them to continue to study STEM and graduate with these degrees. And to do so, they really need a support system that's with them. So that's hope how we're basically structuring our changemaker experience on top of that. So not only focusing on the young girl, but basically being able to support them the entire journey and also ultimately give them the support system in that changemaker experience that lets them know that they can always ask questions, they can always get a mentor, they can always have an advisor with them to be able to graduate and go off and do amazing things. Are there some exciting moments on the horizon coming up that people should watch for? 
Yes, our summer programming. So our goal is to educate a thousand maker girls this summer through both our level one introduction to 3D printing and our level two inventor series. So we're gonna change inventor series from a five week long program to a five day long day camp to fit into summer schedules a little bit easier. But with the same initiatives of past Maker Girl Goes Mobile, we are going to do a virtual Maker Girl Goes Mobile, working with past spaces that we used to visit. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, for listeners who are excited to potentially become a change maker, how would they find out more and participate? If you head over to our website, makergirl.us, there's a Get Involved page. You just fill out a short little survey and we'll be in touch. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Thank you very much, Mary, for joining and, and giving this pretty thrilling update to where Maker Girl is going now. Yeah, it's just been so exciting. So thank you so much for chatting today. Thank you again to Mary for joining us and giving us this update from Maker Girl. And now for our last guest today, we invite back Tim Pulla from the Spark Lab at the Smithsonian to offer his perspective on the role of 3D printing in informal education in an interactive museum experience context. He returns to Talking Additive having been a key figure in episode four with updates on the developments there at Spark Lab as, like many museum teams around the world, they still wait for that moment that they can reopen their physical museum space and usher in all the guests to show them all their 3D printing activities. My name is Tim Pula. I'm the interpretive exhibits inventor at the Smithsonian Spark Lab located in the National Museum of American History. We have a Spark Lab space within the Smithsonian, but we also have network sites that exist in nine museums throughout the country right now. Everything from science centers to historic homes to children's museums. And these are basically versions of our Spark Lab Smithsonian site but each one has its own feel for the museum that it's in. So last year we had a chance to meet in a couple situations. One, you came and spoke in February, 2020, the <laughs> last physical you know, education events happening in the world. Yeah, you came to Construct3D and you gave uh, one of, one of the, uh, the featured presentations, which was fantastic and really in particular was a, was a key part of sharing quote unquote, informal education or the role of museums and other other activities like this in, the edu in as an education context in that conference. And so we, we were able to share a little bit of that on Talking Additive last year and also have a further follow-up conversation with you as the, the world was starting to, to, to change. So one of the things I wanted to start with is uh, get an update. So, so Tim, uh, you know, why don't you give Talking Additive listeners a, an update of where you've been, how you've been since you were on the show last year? All right. It's been an interesting year. I went from being in a hands-on museum space to now working from home. So it's been a big transition. I've been doing all right, though. I actually enjoy working from home. It, since DC is a crazy place to work, I've gotten a lot into digital. I've been doing a lot of digital pieces now and creating a lot of digital content, which is new for me. When we went digital, when COVID shut everything down, my first thought within about a week or so, I was trying to figure out how in the world can we keep Spark Lab alive in a way that people can actually interact and what can we do to do that? <clears throat> and some of our first considerations were Spark Lab's a free space. The National Museum of American History, it's free. So it's a free space for anybody to come into. And the first thing was trying to find free platforms that were kid-friendly and safe for kids to, to utilize. We settled on Instructables. We decided we would try to 
metaphorically recreate the SparkLab space in Tinkercad. So the steps of the invention process that you would see as you come into the space, links to Smithsonian collection pieces and things that are along a certain theme or along a certain guideline. So we'd lay out like an invention challenge and it might be around reinventing the shopping cart. That's one of our big popular ones. And then we had assets that like drawings of the early telescoping shopping carts and, and those we'd have links to them. So people could go to those and we'd have links where people could go to see what carts were in the collection. So it was really nice to be able to bring the Smithsonian side of things into that. So we were trying to really convey the Spark Lab, that Spark Lab feel. And then we used Tinkercad as kind of our hands-on activity stations. So that's where people get the parts set and start building things and start putting things together just like they would in our space at our activity station. So we thought, all right, this is the digital to our analog. Let's see how this works. That's fantastic. We had Guillermo from Tinkercad on in January of this year to give a bunch of updates on Tinkercad and as, as part of a show that also included discussions with people of like Jonathan Odom and Steve Cox about uh, Fusion 360 and some of the connective tissue. But Guillermo Melantoni was talking a bit about some of the the changes they made to make Tinkercad a little bit more flexible and useful for contexts that are you know either virtual or hybrid. The biggest piece that they added to Tinkercad that we've used the most uh, right now is the notes tab. Because one of the biggest things that we have kids do is they have to notate their sketches. So in Tinkercad, you're building a 3D model, but you're also building a sketch, and that notation tool has been fantastic. And then I know they've started up the lesson plan format as well in Tinkercad, and we've recently been working with Jenny at uh, Autodesk for that, and we've been laying out uh, some lesson plans. We have two up right now, and we continue to develop new ones. And what's really nice is we can, we're taking our Instructables that we have and converting them to lesson plans, and then... and just basically laying them in a template and then sending them off to Autodesk and then they'll put them up as a lesson plan for us, which is really nice. So then we can reach teachers more that way because we have the curriculum connections and we have papers that, that they can hand out and we have a lot more, it's much more of a classroom type style. Whereas the Instructables is meant to be something you can use in the classroom in many different ways, but you could also just find it and use it for fun. So it's nice to have both those realms working at the same time. Uh, it's been a fun set of stuff to, to lay out. And Right now I'm working on an accessibility one. That's my next one. That's one of the things we focus on in SparkLab itself is accessibility and with things like the prosthetic hand, the, the adaptive vehicle activity that we've had, the adaptive video game controller activity that we've had. And we're trying to find a really good way to focus on accessibility in this environment as well in the digital environment. So right now I'm laying out one on creating a wheelchair for challenging and harsh environments. It's not up yet. But I've been building out the set pieces for that one, and we've been running the language through the accessibility office. And once we get all that done, we'll get that one posted too, which will be a lot of fun. It reminds me of a story like when, right when the pandemic hit and they were having people pull stuff from their offices to work from home, one of the things that I pulled was our, our Ultimaker. And I had it in its box, and it's got a big robot on the box. And I had it sitting on the train in the storage area next to me. And the conductor came up and he said, is there a robot in that box? And I was like, no, I go, but it's close. I go, it's a 3D printer. I go, it's like a robot. It can build things, which is really cool. And I go, it's part of my work from home supplies. So was the conductor more or less excited about 3D printer than a robot? I think he saw them both as the same thing. Oh, that's rather interesting that, yeah, that there's a, okay, so you get to bring a 3D printer home for your teleworking. Yeah, that's. 
part of my job. And it's been great. I've been able to utilize it to, to design some stuff that's going to some of our Spark Lab network sites. But then another big thing, and I think I mentioned it to you in one of the emails, myself and some of our exhibit technology people work together to create a touchless button that we can utilize within the space, which is really cool. And we don't have any buttons in our space, but within the museum as a whole, there are a ton of like arcade buttons. And we modeled our touchless button off of the same same shape and size as the standard Suzo Hap button or the old style arcade buttons from Suzo Hap. And we laid out a couple different things. We picked up some circuitry from Adafruit and, and brought those in. And one of our exhibit technology guys coded some great stuff and We've been working on getting that button patented now. So we've been going through a process with Smithsonian to try and get that patented. There are a lot of ones on the market that are very similar and very close. So I'm not sure how well that's going to work out getting ours patented, but we feel like we have a couple of independent claims that are good enough to be patented. We just have to figure out whether or not it's worth the time and the effort. We were trying to figure out how to solve the touch aspect of things throughout the museum. Of course, now much of the data says that it's not so much physical objects that you touch, but at the same time, the flu season will still come. And I hate the, to say it, but each year, it seems like some new virus comes about or some new disease. And if we can reduce touch and have something that's, that becomes just as ubiquitous as the arcade button, but is touchless, then we've mitigated a lot of issues right there. And another thing that was nice with our design, again, I said or earlier, I said accessibility was important for us in the space. And one of the things that we did with the touchless button, because we had met with the accessibility office before I even pitched the idea, was is that it, it has an audible and a visual output. So it has some accessibility baked into it, which is part of what we were looking for. It not only clues in anybody how to use it, but it also helps with people who are low vision or have hearing issues that they can tell whether or not or if, that's, if it's active or not active, which is another nice part about it. It's been a real neat design process, and I can't tell you how many prototypes, though, that we made to try and fit things together and make it all work and make it universal. I've told people in our space before, and this is one of the things that I miss the most, when the physical Spark Lab space was there, kids would, we'd set out a set of activities that were all prototypes at that time. As soon as they go out, it's a working prototype. And then that first two weeks was my favorite time. That's when we tweak things. So when we look at the invention process, there's, there's that creating it, you're sketching things, you're doing all this kind of stuff, you're trying it, and that's when we put it in front of people, and then you're tweaking it to make those changes that are the little nuances that make it better. And I miss that a lot, but it's been fun with the touchless button to actually do some of these kinds of tweaks just to go, oh yeah, it doesn't work with this, or we need to make this opening this size, or, and that's been nice, and I've really missed that part of it. And I think when we go back, that's a, that's going to be the thing that I like the most is actually seeing people interact with not just the button, but our stuff as well, the physical activities and how they interact with them again. I'm just wondering, what do you imagine as you've been creating things will be some of the you know, unexpected opportunities when you have physical guests using them in, fr in front of you for exhibits again? I'm imagining going back to the way things were in some ways. I'm really not picturing much else when it comes to that. I'm really hoping that things go back to the way that they were. Uh, I'm really hoping that we, I still imagine kids trying to get into things and do things with materials that we've designed in ways that we may not expect. And that's fine. And that's, again, that's one of my favorite things is trying to figure that out, not trying to counter them, but to just go, well, we hope that it gets used in a certain way. So how can I design around that? Which, you know, which is fun. That's just exciting. That's 
part of what makes my brain work that's fun. And But I don't really see it being all that different. We have made some changes in some of our activities coming up, though, in that we are looking at maybe some more network sites to come online, some more Spark Lab sites in different areas to come online in the next year. And, and the idea of shipping things to those sites. One of the things that we've been doing, we have a couple of pieces that we send out. One's a, a vertical wind tunnel that's based on the Exploratorium vertical wind tunnel, but we've made it where it's a little more stout and a little more solid, and we're using a greenhouse evacuation fan and things like that, a little more industrial. And it's really hard to ship. It's when we, because I build it out and then I set it up to, and we put it in these boxes and we have to build out taller boxes and ship it. And one of the things I've been working on over this time is how to redesign stuff to actually make, to get our network sites to have to do some mild assembly. So some assembly required when they get some of these items. And for two reasons though. One, so it's easier for us to ship, but the main reason is we want them to take a bit of ownership of those activities and really see them as something that they own that they can tweak and they can modify and they can invent upon and they can, they can change up in ways that work for them in their space when those kids come in and start doing different things that we may not expect. So we've really been pushing to do some of that. The, our vertical wind tunnel, I've gotten it figured out where we can actually fit it in smaller boxes and you build it like a cake in some way with all the different pieces on it. But we also have found that suppliers, this has been another challenge of this, suppliers are changing some of the stuff that's available or some things are no longer available that we've used before. We've been, I've been trying to design into some of our things that we build variability, like adjustability points. So it's, oh, if I can't get a, an expander for the air duct that's, that's six inches tall, I can only get one that's five inches tall. How can I design this wind tunnel so that I don't have to redesign the pieces new when I get that other piece that's a different size? How can I make it, how can I adapt it and make it adaptable for whatever is available production-wise at the time from manufacturers? And that's been a fun challenge as well. And then our, our last bit of it is trying to fit it all in a certain size box. We have these, certain, I can't remember the dimensions of it now, but we have plastic totes, certain size, and I'm trying to figure out how do you get a human mannequin in a box that size that can be assembled really easily or just fold up and then fold out and ready to go. And I've been laying some of those things out and it's like, all right, we know we need to scale it down, but how do we make this work? And it's been fun. It's really neat to try and think around some of those challenges. So I guess that's been my shift from trying to think about challenges that kids present in the space to thinking about challenges as we go forward. So that's, it's been a lot of fun. I love all the kind of meta layers that you're, you, do so much work to help inspire visitors to invent, to understand the history of invention, and to think as inventors for how to solve things and, and, and get beyond the like an immediate solution to really feel engaged. You also are an inventor yourself in order to even solve these problems and having to work with sometimes pretty interesting constraints for how you can execute them. And then uh, you make your activities also for healthy reasons, in inventions for inspiring your sites to be inventors. So they're really engaged and able to, to really own the piece, be able to service the piece, be able to expand the piece. I think that's it's really interesting. Do you want to talk a little bit about 2021 take on the importance of invention and ways that you're thinking about it, even if your means of focused on showing, showing this is a little bit different than usual? Yeah. Um, for 2021, one of the things that I think about when I'm thinking about invention, I think a lot of people will look back and connect invention to 2020 and think about 
ways that people were inventive on how they worked from home or how they set up their office. And I think one of our big things is we want people to think that way. We want them to know that's not just somebody doing something, that's inventive. That's an inventive mindset. It's problem solving, it's being creative. It's finding solutions that are outside of what you might, us you might usually do. And in not just at home office, but PPE and all these other things that in vaccines, all the different things that people might think about as those inventions of 2020. I think as people think back on those, we really want people to realize that they are inventive in everyday life. The things that they're doing are inventive. And when we put the activities in front of kids that we put out, they get to practice that inventive thinking. And we're hoping that they go away doing the same thing and going into their daily lives and going, oh, when I was in the Spark Lab, I invented a, a new clothing thing for if I was going to a party. I created this clothing thing and that was inventive. And now I'm at home and I've got a problem with trying to take out this heavy trash can, but I'm gonna create a solution and I'm gonna be inventive. And I hope that we want them to draw those connections. Our center is, as a whole is working on trying to, is working on creating an exhibition called Game Changers where the core of it is getting visitors to the exhibition to think about their own inventive identity and step into those roles of inventive identity. Because one of the things we talk about is how when people go into the museum, they're in a visitor role identity as they enter the museum. And we want them to think of themselves and we want them to engage and kind of delve into that inventive identity of, of a person. And in that, they'll bring with them their experiences, their life, their family history, all these different things. They'll bring those things with them and those will inform their outcomes, just like they do in Spark Lab. Hopefully the same thing will happen in our Game Changers exhibition, that their outcomes in the activities they do in there will inform, will be informed by who they are and their experiences. And then our history and our, our collection objects and, and all that are in place and our inventors that are profiled will be hopefully those inspirations to get them thinking, I am like that inventor there on the wall. I am like that, that I have that in me. And that's what we're really pushing for going forward. So what are your thoughts about changing roles for additive manufacturing and 3D printing in both cultivating an, an inventive mindset and, and also in general in, in, in a space like yours for creating experiences and activities? I really hope that more museums utilize 3D printing and additive manufacturing for creating and cultivating these types of experiences. And one of the things we're pushing for is to get our network sites who do have 3D printers to get them involved in using those in ways that are more than just printing out like a trinket of some sort or something like that, but actually printing out parts for their activities or, or actively engaging with us to have things redesigned so that it works in their space. For education, I'm not sure how that will work. It'll be interesting to see. The resources are there that you can design out. You can set up your print plan in the software like Kira and get it ready to go. And I'll be curious to see how schools utilize that. I don't know what that's going to look like offhand. I'm not really even all that sure Yeah, what that will be like. I know for us, I think it's going to take on a new role when it comes to reaching museums and spaces outside of our even outside of our standard network, because our, our center has a few initiatives in one that they're working on that hopefully will take shape in, in Qatar, and then maybe one in Singapore that we're talking about. And what'll be really nice is being able to not have to ship materials. We'll have to ship some things, but not to constantly send materials to actually have digital assets available and materials there that additive manufacturing can then create those physical materials and we don't have to necessarily ship those across the world and have a little 
at least decrease our carbon footprint as much as possible in doing that and trying to utilize the materials that are compostable and friendly, environmentally friendly. So those are, I think, things that going forward are going to be pretty important. For me personally, from a side note, I've been noticing a lot of really neat carbon fiber and nylon mixes of materials that I like that are they're really cool. My big hobby they got me into STEM was radio control cars. And I, I've been seeing how a lot of people in that field have been using a lot of those tougher materials. They're, they're really hard on the nozzles and, and things like that and hard on the extruders, but they're outputting materials that are nearly indestructible. That's pretty impressive. That's really cool to be able to do that. And I've actually created a few pieces at our local library because our local library has a Ultimaker S5 and I've been going down there creating some files and printing out some pieces for my hobby stuff as well. So I've been using it both ways. And I hope the kids start doing that, that kids will they'll see it in school, they'll take it and they'll go, oh, I can do this at home. I can solve this problem. I can be inventive or I can do something I enjoy and I can go to the library and just try this stuff out. So I'm thinking maybe even little spaces like libraries will be good areas for kids to go to to really explore 3D printing and something that's even more personal than their classroom. I really like this sort of thinking that you've been doing into how you can leverage a couple of the other strengths of additive manufacturing to really make the kind of work that you're doing useful to some of those who are distant in geography from your site. Tell me some other thoughts about ways that, that you think you might be able to, to leverage 3D printing. Out of our SparkLab network sites, one of our sites is the Reno, Nevada site, and they have a number of uh, small Ultimaker machines in their SparkLab space, and they use them where kids can come in with designs and print those out. But recently, as the Nevada site has begun to reopen, they have run into the, the problem of we're low on funds, and because we've been closed for so long, and we don't really have a lot of ability to create too many new things, but we want to create some new activities. So what I did in a call with them is just talk to them about what they have available. And one of the things they have available is they still have quite a bit of filament available from their 3D printers because they haven't been running for, for quite a while. So I, I said, well, if you want to do these activities, give them a title of one and say, and I've got some 3D printable elements to that. So I can shoot you the files and you can 3D print those. And then I'll shoot you the SVG files of the stuff that they go on top of. And, I'll, and then I'll shoot you the text. And with that, you can build out an activity that's never been in your space. We haven't put it on our network offerings. We've used it in our space and it worked pretty well. You can try it out in your space. So if you have the material, it's pretty cheap to 3D print those parts and it and you get this still this really cool look, really cool ability to work with things and some really neat props that you get to use in your space. One of them I sent out was our, our highway system. We had a design a highway system activity where we had these little hexes. I think Catan is one of the games where you use hexes. And then we had cities and farms and all that kind of stuff that we had 3D printed that would sit on those. And then we 3D printed semis and cars and then cut out highway shapes. Everything from cloverleaf uh, interchanges to turns and straightaways. And the idea was to lay out where you would put your city components and where you would lay, how you'd lay out the roads to get there and what that would look like. And we even had neighborhoods and things like that. And, and we tied it into our the, the creation of the U.S. highway system when that came about. And, and there was there's a lot of great stuff you can tell with that. Everything from people getting back to work, but also those challenging stories of the neighborhoods that got plowed through because they were, you know, low socioeconomic classes and they got plowed through and the highway went through there. So there it's it was nice to be it's nice to be able to tell a lot of different stories with it. But that was a great activity for us to send to Reno because they wanted to talk. They wanted to do activities on transportation. And that one, we can just shoot the files over and they have those to 
create what, whatever they need for that activity. Another thing I've been doing with it too is there are a lot of toy sets that are out there that we use a lot of toy sets in our space. And there are quite a few of them where it's a product, so they have to keep below a certain price point. So sometimes some of the key components of that product will break. And we have been, I've been modifying and building replacement pieces for those that are durable. They may cost a lot more price point wise, but for our spaces, they work really well. So we can use the rest of the toy set and then this one week component, we, we create our own version of it that works with that toy set and it gets utilized. And that's another thing I've been doing a lot lately. There's a particular toy set that has gears that drive around on it. And our network sites love that activity that has those. So I've created a new gear drive setup that, that works in place of the motor that was on there, a lot more solid. And then when we talked to our Reno site about it, they wanted to, they were the first thing that they said is, oh, what about putting it on a vertical? So my first thought is, oh, so they're gonna magnetize things. So I actually went back into our design, redesigned it a little bit, set it up so it can take some magnets, went to KNG Magnets and, and I think it's KNG or KNG, I can't, rec can't recall, but I went to their site and you can actually, they've got this great calculator on there that says if you're this distance from your material, this is what your magnetic pull strength is and all that kind of stuff with this particular magnet. So I went in and redesigned some of those pieces. And then I got in touch with Reno and they're like, we might drive it on with screws. So then I went back in and put screw holes in the thing. So now it's like, if you want to drive it in with screws, it works. If you want to put magnets on it, it works. And then I designed the gear a little bit different. So I'm like, if you want to put magnetic sheets on the back of the other things, you can do it. So whatever you do, it works. So <laughs> designing around that and trying to make it and make things that are universal for any use is has been a lot of good, a lot of fun when it comes to our network sites. And I think we're, I think we're able to do that more and more, which yeah, additive manufacturing has helped with a lot, helped that a lot, helped with that a lot, and and again, CNC using the CNC to get repeatable designs that's helped with that a lot too. And we we love being able to do it. It's it's a great way to solve problems, and it's a lot of it's it makes things so much better for our network sites, it makes things so much better for us, and and we really enjoy it. And that's that inventive problem solving that people are doing using yeah using additive manufacturing. That's the thing that we're we really are pushing in SparkLab to get kids to think about not just through additive manufacturing, just in general. And then if they get access to additive manufacturing, it just magnifies what they can do when it comes to that inventive problem solving. I wanted to see if you had a couple of thoughts looking at ways that you've been finding more opportunities to engage with digital practices and think about inspiring an inventive mindset with, with various activities, the new button, things like this. What are some ways that you're really hoping that as education comes out of these times in which so many people are at home and, and can't really do applied work or kit building or anything, ways that 3D printing might be helpful in the future to education? I think one of the ways is just really getting people to be able to think about those problems, those everyday problems, because I think being confined at home for so many people and having in the quarantine there, I'm sure there are a lot of problems that came up that you couldn't solve very easily. You couldn't just go out and buy something. A lot of people probably bought things on Amazon or bought things online to solve certain problems, but I'm hoping that people begin to think about, oh, if I had a way to manufacture this in my house or to make this in my house a quick and easy way, then I could solve these problems and very easily, very quickly and make that switch, make something happen really fast. And I know that when I got into 3D printing back in around, I think it was 20, 2009, 2010, something like that, when I started looking at it, it was one of those things that the whole idea of using 3D printing to create things that you needed on the spot was interesting and everybody was talking about it, but it hasn't quite gotten there 
for in-home use. I think it's really in R&D labs and stuff. I think schools, if they can start to utilize that, I think that's going to be super nice. If you want to have barriers between kids, why not? You could 3D print the little feet for, for the barriers that you're going to put up. If teachers really push kids to find solutions to simple problems, utilizing 3D printing, that's a good route to start. And then kids will just start developing new ways. They'll start thinking of ways to solve more complex problems. It's just, you just get them started with something that's comfortable. And that's what we do in our space. We get them started with something that's comfortable, something that's familiar. And then from there, they can branch out as they feel more comfortable going forward. They have that feeling of safety when we give them something that's safe and comfortable to start with. And I think the same thing will happen in classrooms as well, and utilizing the three that's perfect. So thank you very much for saying that. And I really hope that's the direction that we're headed with this. It's certainly how we hope this tool can be of use. So I think we'll go out on that. So Tim, thank you so much for joining, for talking additive again. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Matt. It's been great being here. I love talking to you. I always learn a lot and I always have a good time and get inspired to try new things and think about things in new ways. So I appreciate it. Thank you again to Chip, Adam, Mary, and Tim for joining us today. We hope that you have enjoyed our 26th episode for the Talking Additive podcast, 3D printing in education in the post-COVID era. If you have questions about any topics covered during the episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag Talking Additive, all one word. Coming up next Tuesday on June 15th, catch the first of our Ultimaker Turns 10 mini episodes. And in two weeks' time, on June 22nd, we return with episode 27, New Developments in Functional Prototyping and Agile Manufacturing, the next step in our Future of Work mini-series. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at TalkingAdditive.com. Thank you again to Chip, Adam, Mary, and Tim, and your teams and programs. Our series producer is Hannah Gabrielle Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, music and episode sound mix by Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.